I mean, I think it's important that everybody feel comfortable with what we're doing. I, I personally think that his antibiotics are, you know, it's like uh, a pea shooter against an atomic bomb. I mean, the guy is not, I mean, if you lo look at the natural history of w what's happened here and what his prognosis is and what we know about, uh, you know, terminal lung cancer, I mean, there's not anything any of us is going to be able to do. And whether you give him the antibiotics or not, I think is sort of more how you feel personally about it. I guess the, I guess the issue that's going to become you know, a major issue is that everybody feel comfortable with sort of withdrawing his care. I, I certainly do. I mean, I think that on Friday night, I, you know, I've never thought that when the guy arrived here that he had uh, um, a chance of pulling through. But I do think it's very important for the family to give them, you know, the feeling that we're doing everything that we can to the point that they come to the realization that, I mean, there are a lot of unresolved issues here. Uh, uh, he never dealt with his feelings with his younger daughter. A lot of anger on both of their parts, evidently. And um, both, you know, you know, they've been married for 34 years. I mean, you know, a lot of other, and they, I think they all, you know, didn't have a chance to s say goodbye to him. And that was the thing that was really irking them. I think they sort of knew intellectually that he wasn't going to make it, but emotionally on Friday they were just not prepared to accept that. And I think now they've, you know, they've really, they've evolved to a different stage in their own feelings. And I mean, I think that we've got to sort of take that into account. But, you know, always in a situation like this, there are four or five different groups of people here. I mean, there's, you know, the, the nurses know from the, knew from the moment he walked in the door that he wasn't going to make it. And I think that the family was a bit angry that they were getting that, sort of getting that message from the nurses. I mean, I sort of knew that too, but I didn't give them the same message. I sort of said, yes, you know, we're going to do all this stuff. But everybody's got to feel comfortable that we're, you know, before we sort of embark on a course of action here, that we're, we're doing the right thing. I mean, nobody likes to lose. I mean, but this is not something that we have a lot of control over. Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. I'm Sean Glynis, your co-host, and I'm here with Arlen Golden, how are you doing, Arlen? Hey, Sean. I'm I'm doing good. I'm ha happy to be talking about all this this stuff with you again. Uh, it's it's been a minute. Happy New Year. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think we have a, a bit of housekeeping uh, to cover. Do we not? Do we have more shirts? Oh uh, no, we we sold out <laughs> of shirts finally. Uh, nice. Don't but no, please please buy our shirts. Um, <laughs> We got deets on the new docs. Yes, you're right. You're right. You're um, totally right. A family business. It's been that long, but yes, a family business, which a is a tip to Carolyn Anderson. Yes, thank you for uh, the notice. Of, uh, I forgot the foundation, but it, it was listed in, in a list of, of film grants. Foreign Foundation. There, they love they love to fund things. Um, but, uh, this is not the film from, uh, Tom Cohen in 1982 as part of the Middletown <laughs> series on PBS looking at, uh, Muncie, Indiana. Uh, this was, a, that was a Shakey's pizza, but rather, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> but rather, uh, Weissman will be stationed just a bit outside of Lyon, France at a three Michelin star restaurant who, Soik, Soikos, Sokios? something like that greek name yeah yeah i'm not sure but a uh, very prestigious institution and uh um looks like he's gonna look at it uh as a family thing it's kind of like it sounds to me a little bit like a scene but like super high class and like Foodie. an actual family <laughs> but like right who knows 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, yeah. All we could do is, is conjecture, but like the, you know, there's always the thing of, um, we're, we're not a business. We're a family, you know, and how uh, employers use that sort of a bit as a manipulative tool. Um, But you know, interesting that he's calling it that when it's like this food angle you know it's like a very specific kind of business you know and, right. it, and he's not calling it restaurant you know he's calling it a family business. business so like that that's interesting yeah um with a name like a family business and knowing it's about a, a restaurant you would at first think it would be about olive garden <laughs> that's that's true well you it's know kind of a curveball that'd be uh that'd be definitely a perk you know just uh boom in one hand unlimited breadsticks in the other <laughs> but i mean you know you you got to imagine this is probably somewhere weissman has been to like just because he he lives in france and mm-hmm. you know uh like likes fancy things sometimes and um um so it, it'll be interesting to to see what what sort of angle he takes if it's you know, if it's critical, if it's something that's more like his aesthetic films, just kind of exploring, you know, the the like aspects of food. But I mean, that that business title really makes you think that there's there's something that will be investigated here um, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that we won't be able to see until we see it. Yeah, hopefully everything goes well with shooting and everything. Um, <clears throat> yes, yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, and then. Uh, yeah, we saw we saw hospital together uh, since the last time we recorded. Big screen, Is that right? 30, 35 millimeter. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's, it's been that long, but yeah, that that was amazing. That was uh, super fun. Just um, I my first Weissman on celluloid. Um, and that theater screen is bigger than any screen I'd seen his uh, films on before, uh, either, either even in here uh, at the Roxy in SF. Um, but it, yeah, it's like floor to ceiling. So like, especially you know that this period for Weissman where there's there's so much of the frame taken up by people's heads. You know, just like right. getting getting those figures just larger than life like uh it's super immersive and and you know i i would make an effort uh for anyone of our listeners if if there's ever a weissman celluloid screening you know within a reasonable distance to to make the effort to go see it yeah it was funny that that was uh what we happened to see before the near death Um, totally yes i think as as we joked walking out that near death is kind of hospital too, right? In Wiseman terms, but um, but yeah, that was it was beautiful um, and just great to see the mescaline scene on, on the big screen and just, <laughs> I was dying. <laughs> oh, yeah, it brought the house down. Yeah, but yeah. Um, any other any other housekeeping? Uh, we talk a bit about the lack of inclusion in the expanded sight and sound poll later with our guest, Nicholas Rapold. Um, but that is something that happened. It's a bit, uh, a bit disappointing, but you know, I think we, we've, we've covered why we think that happens and, uh, look forward to the greater accessibility to his work to further engender, uh, critical consensus i don't know that's right 
galvanize. Yeah. Um, well, we're talking about near death today, as I said, and I was thinking, you know, leading up to near death, like when we, we were, you know, finishing up Death and Blind and, and doing um, Missile, I was like kind of like really excited to get to near death because it's like this sort of mammoth artifact and it's big and it's dealing with a big thing and um and i hadn't seen it before and it's black and white and um and then i was really excited to watch it and watched it and it was great a great experience and then when it came to like the research part of it it was like it 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 was kind of hard for me to like figure out where to go with it um Mm -hmm. because as i was talking to you earlier um a lot about near death at least there's so much on the surface um Mm -hmm. and and there's so much there that like it it seems self-evident why this is great and um and there's so much to take in on the surface that it that you can easily stop there and it's harder to figure out um some of the mechanics that are happening and or why the surface is functioning the way that the surface is functioning um, and a lot of the reading doesn't really cover that. Uh, so thankfully, I, I, I think that um, our guest, uh, Nick Rapold, um, it was nice to chat with him, the three of us, and kind of arrive at some of the things that uh, a lot of the writing doesn't really talk about, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Or if it does, uh, briefly. But um, uh, of course, Barry Keith Grant comes through in the clutch. Um, <laughs> but uh, but also you found a little something with with Barry Keith Grant's writing on, on near death. That is interesting to note. I did the book <laughs> on the book on near death that. Uh, oh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I remember that. That was the bummer. <laughs> um, so like I was reading this book about, uh, Kazuo O'Hara's seminal documentary, the emperor's naked army marches on, which was part of uh, a Cinetech series, C I N E T E K. Um, in the UK, and, was that? Yeah, it, it was a, a UK series, um, and you know, I re- I really enjoyed that book. It was a bit a bit of a precursor to like the BFI uh, book series, where they're they're relatively short but no less Film deep classics. dives into individual films um the cinetech was looking at a bit more obscure titles than the bfi series would go on to do um but i was like all right well what what other cinetech books are there so i peek in the back and sure enough near death by barry keith grant uh was listed and this was you know we had maybe a month to when we record this i was like i gotta i gotta track this down I got to read this whole thing. <laughs> uh, couldn't find really hide nor hair of it, save for its ISBN listed on a few like used book sites in the UK and New Zealand. No cover image, out of stock, both places, no price. Uh, so yeah, I reached out to Barry and I was like, what's the deal? And and he relayed the news that, uh, I guess, not, not news, the uh, for him but news for me that that uh the book was set to go to print it was all done and then right before they were going to publish it uh the the print house went under so it was never published so uh but we he did um give us the the good news that 
uh, most of what was in there will appear in some capacity in the forthcoming edition of Voyages of Discovery. Um, so we we have that to look forward to. The, the, the original edition, as we all know, uh, ends with Near Death. It is the final film covered. So we'll be we'll be flying blind without the benefit of Grant's insight for the next couple, but uh, look forward to picking up uh, where we left off when when the new book comes out. Yes, indeed. Um, so uh, near death uh, to shoot at Wiseman spent six weeks in the autumn of 1987 shooting at mm-hmm. uh, Boston's Beth Israel Hospital. So he's you know he's in his backyard, so to speak, and. Um, yeah. It took him apparently 14, 14 months. I almost said minutes to edit. Some uh, <laughs> damn zoom. Uh, 14 months to edit, uh, 80 hours to six. Um, and he spends time with mainly three families, but not exclusively during their ICU visits at the Beth Israel, as well as many of the doctors and nurses that work there. Um, or that come in from other departments. We get like a physician specifically uh, that comes from a different floor. Uh, mm-hmm. And apparently, uh, you know, the, the consent he got from the families was based in their desire mm-hmm. to help others be prepared for this experience. Um, as you say later, he calls it a rehearsal. Um, and the film <laughs> aired near the end of January in 1990. Um, but as you also kind of tease later, <clears throat> um, the idea for the for near death uh, stemmed from Richard Pasternak, who is the uh, director of the cardiac care unit at Beth Israel. And he, he was just intrigued by every day seeing these interactions between like children in their middle age, just having to suddenly make these big decisions about life of their parents. And that, that they're often doing this, this without like having discussed this scenario with their parents, you know, most likely like Mm -hmm. death just hasn't been talked about. And all of a sudden they're faced, they have to confront head on this like idea that's just kind of been pregnant uh, for years um, in the ether. And now they just have to really uh, take it head on. And apparently he he was, he was, yeah. uh, Pastor Nack was a fan of Wiseman's and he ran into to Wiseman at a cocktail party (laughs) and uh, told him about, this this thing that that i just said and um uh before he knew it wiseman had uh, total access to the icu and editorial control yeah um which is kind of worth noting and and remarkable being that this is boston in 87 when titty cut folly's distribution is not yet settled that case you know would would go on to to be a thing until 91 um so for somebody in massachusetts especially in the medical profession (laughs) to to like give weissman that that vote of confidence you know is is i think pretty remarkable right like funny yeah yeah like and and uh you know, this this could sort of also be like a bit of a, a midpoint check-in in his career uh, with Follies and this film, and then most recently City Hall taking place in Boston as well. You know, this kind of um, Massachusetts mm-hmm. trilogy, um, but but home, hometown hero. And, and the film also seemed to be a bit of return to Weissman to like critical acclaim a bit. 
Um, the mm-hmm. film premiered it at the new variety, but we'll get there. <laughs> oh God. I knew, I knew before we even read that one that they were going <laughs> to yeah, have yeah. trouble, <laughs> but, um, it premiered at New York film festival, uh, in 87 or 88, sorry. And, um, it won the Fipressi prize of international film critics at Berlin, as well as the Prix de l'Age d'Or, which is named after the Bunuel film, uh, which is awarded by the Belgian Royal Cinematheque for films that, by the originality, the singularity of its subject and its writing, deliberately depart from cinematographic conformism. Uh, and they, they award one uh, film that award a year. So uh, Near Death was the one. Did did the Oscars have best uh, nonfiction <laughs> at this point? When did that start? Yeah, they, they did. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I don't know what it would have been. In, I guess, the 1990 ceremony. Yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, but, yeah, it's one of those things that it's like you'd have to think that if it was properly considered um, that it would, you know, be nominated at least or whatever. But um, also this was uh, shown on TV. I think it was – I think it came on at, like, around 10 o'clock or something. Do you remember? Like – 10 p.m. is when it, it would it start. It varied, yeah. It got some better slots in some markets than others, but like, and, yeah, yeah, some was like, you know, midnight to six in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> 10, 10, 10 to four. Yeah. And, um, but also, I think after that initial run, he also edited it to be like shown in, in segments uh, mm. more easily. But, you, you know, in, interesting just on the Oscar question, uh, you know, you think, oh, this might be a little heavy for uh, the academy but in 88 uh the the, uh, hotel terminus the office film that that made that made wiseman's list and and, uh in 89 was common threads uh the rob epstein film about the uh aids quilt um so yeah true true but like you know the the uh deep dives into like death and trauma, I guess, yeah. uh, seem to be in, in the air at the time. Interesting. Well, you're up liked him. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, what, what you were talking about earlier about this sort of self-evident idea, you know, um, I, I you know, it, it was a bit like welfare when, when I was coming away from it, I'm like, yeah, this is great. Obviously, you know what? I think I think Mamber had a similar thing. It's just kind of like you know, what can you say about it? Yeah, you know, yeah. you 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 watch it and it's it's incredible, it and you know, it it is what it is. You know, but, yeah. But at least yeah. like with welfare, um, I agree with you. It does give off that feeling. But um, at least with welfare, there's like, oh my god, there's this character and this character, and like he got this, and it's just like very like frenetic and yeah. um, and animated. And it's like you can't really be like, oh my gosh, can can you believe like he caught this conversation where this guy is being very patient in general with this family? <laughs> <laughs> like, True, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's there's a uh, definitely, I guess I don't want to say it's like lacking anything, but there's there's no real like spontaneous element in this film, and, and quite the contrary, like everything is meticulously like kind of reasoned through and and thought mm-hmm. out and and discussed like kind of ad nauseum almost, um, right. which you know we will we'll get into some of the writers who are being dumb guys about like 
you know, this is another Weissman film just doing his thing. But, um, like, there is this element to it that, that feels slightly different. Like, there, there are a few ways in which, and I mean, I think, you know, it's intensive, intensely narrativized, uh, being the first one, like, like there's very clear sort of, you know, obviously he's in, in interstitials and the way he structures like segments, there'll, there'll be some playing with chronology, but as it relates to like the, the plights of these four central patients, uh, and their families, like, like there's a respect given to the order of, of, the pro filmic event that probably right. isn't always represented in, in his films. Case in point, the, the title cards at the end, which you, you talk a lot about um, later. Right. Right. And it, 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 side note, but interestingly in the title cards at the beginning, we get the funding cards mm-hmm. uh, along with it uh, showed channel four funding. And I think uh, a French um, company too, but that, was unusual kind of wondered what that was about also maybe um, to get yeah. out of the way of the the ones at the end yeah sure. right yeah <laughs> well should, should we get into the reviews um sure yeah may, maybe just bef- briefly before that you know this is a film that uh is ripe for like pr- professional writing within the field in a way that not all of his films are, uh, but we were sometimes fortunate to counter. So there, there are a number of like medical journals and like oh, academic yeah. theses, you know, that, that touch upon the film. Um, you, you were saying you didn't read this, but so I just, I just want to briefly get into Carlos Pereira's uh, 2015 uh, dissertation for Stockholm university titled the end had no end framing death and the phenomenology of dying in documentary cinema, uh, which was, it was about like 70 pages, um, read over wow. a couple nights, but, um, really just gets into the idea of death, uh, the moment of death, even as like a documentary event. This um, is film writing or it's from this, like this, he he was yeah it was a dissertation in cinema studies yeah okay okay so so that he he talks a lot about other films um most of which i had seen there was like the bridge and grizzly man um uh there was some kind of mondo thing in there that sounded weird um but like like <laughs> films where you see people die or there's like a direct engagement with like the moment of death, um, uh, which is, is a bit different than kind of how I conceptualize this film and, and the, the kind of category it is where, you know, a, a lot of these films, uh, docs on, on death and dying are focused on like a central figure, you know, and we'll, we'll follow their journey, uh, through the experience, um, you know, we, I'm sure we'll get into Alec King's Dying at Grace, uh, which is much more corollary with this um, and looking at multiple people in a single institution. But all this to say is, is that in that piece, um, he's, he's talking about the unique power of documentary cinema to um, phenomenal phenomenologically um like put put you within the consciousness of death <laughs> of dying f- trying to find that moment from existence to non-existence you know yeah. and and the 
the barrier, um, uh, that barrier being represented uh, by the film screen as the barrier between like the dying subject and the viewer, you know, and, and as we talk about later, like there's just no way to watch this film without confronting death in various ways, like your own preconceptions about it, your own experiences with it. You know, it's, it's all going to come up. There's no running away from it. Yeah. Um, and, and just yeah. Uh, contextualizing like uh, how Americans deal with death. Uh, totally totally to. yeah yeah that that's something i think we'll we will see in like some british interviews or, or reviews rather like right, like right. you know just just kind of this is how they do it over there you know? <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah yeah I, I would encourage anyone to check check out that piece if they want a deep dive but um there there was uh, a bit of just like a, a nice little nugget from Weissman that was quoted um, from a 2012 interview in Filmmaker Magazine uh, that could give us a nice basis. I mean, not nothing super revelatory, but I'll just read it. At least 50% of editing my films has to do with an attempt at an analysis of human behavior. The basic question is why? Why does somebody ask for a cigarette at a given moment? Is there an explanation for the choice of one word rather than another? What's the significance of the dress that a woman is wearing? What is someone, why does someone pause in mid-sentence? Is there an explanation for a change of tone? I mean, these are the kinds of evaluations one is always making in ordinary experience when you meet people. Uh, so then, hence, they would be the same in editing. But the, the idea of Weissman, like, really trying to figure out what the hell is going on just as much as we are, you know, right. really resonated with me, like through the editing, like he doesn't know, he does, you know, he talks about watching rushes with Davey every night during production a lot and kind of trying to get at what scenes mean. Um, but just the idea that, that his process is so fluid and that the, the footage, you know, seems to really lead him into, um, trying to convey cinema cinematically like the the experience of being you know i think in this film in particular uh more, perhaps more than any of his others like the experience of being present within this space is like the main thing yeah absolutely um there was <clears throat> you mentioned later the john gian Gian Vito uh, interview that was contemporaneous um, with uh, Near Death. Um, and he has this quote about uh, form and like audience. Um, it's uh, while constructing their own movie out of the material, they are asked to reconstruct the form I have chosen. And I think, I think it's an elegant and succinct way to describe the abstract experience of watching a Wiseman film. But he goes on to talk about how the subject dictates the form and something, you know, something yeah. he said often, but, but not always elaborating on it, but he talks about how the ICU is more about learning about situations through dialogue where central park is more about shots of the people in the park and how they use it. And he says, as a result, you get to know people differently in each film. Uh, so, you know, obviously very intimately in near death, we're privileged to these conversations and, um, uh, just closer proximity. And, but, in Central Park, they're just from afar. You know, they're just like little ants sometimes or just people from like, mm -hmm. uh, across the sidewalk. And I thought it was interesting because people often talk about how they expect a Wiseman film to be one thing or the other. You know, like that's the whole idea behind like 
Oh man, wouldn't you love like you know Wiseman's Casino? Um, like would. it's good. I mean, yes, and obviously it'd be great, <laughs> but but also like part of that is we have like an idea of what that would look like, and yeah. it's either you know usually it's for a lot of people um, it's either that he's like when they're speaking in generalizations that he's like this objective fly on the wall or, or that he's sort of like pushing this matter through like this Wiseman filter, you know, turning it into this uniform thing, like endless meetings or these poetic characters, like I mentioned right. in, in, in welfare, but he is much more to, to your point of a participant than, mm-hmm. than the first of those uh, generalizations gives him credit for and much more of a listener than, than the second one gives him credit for. And that is really special about near death is that uh, he is participating and he's, he's listening um, and we're listening through him, but, but yeah, um, it's almost weird. It it feels not necessarily therapeutic, but it feels like a film for him in those terms a bit more. And um, where like he says about the audience, we're sort of left to, to construct it on our own. And mm-hmm. when he's editing it, he's sort of editing it for himself. And it's all guided by his participation and, and his willingness to listen rather than being like, and I want to make it about this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 A- another great quote from that interview from him was that, you know, there's this, we'll get into the reviews, but like there's this idea that the Weissman is distant, you know, the films are detached, you know, and in mm-hmm. an, an effort to towards objectivity which you know by this point anyone who's been listening to the show knows is is not good or the case um but so he so he says you know to counter that idea that the films are not an effacement of self it's actually a revealing of my view a revelation in the sense that i'm finding out for myself what i think uh what he what he saw when he made the film you know right like like it, it it and it's kind of unique i think in in cinematic terms to embark on that experience of discovery with the filmmaker like the way through editing a montage like he's he's able to somehow recreate his own experience of like meaning creation and and sifting through the materials so that it's impressed upon the viewer is like you know maybe the the key like thing about him that 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 why we're here you know talking about him month after month you know it's just like such such a gift yeah and and part of that part of what he saw or whatever is uh for near death it's important to talk about the length of it and yeah in that interview you know i mean well first of all can you imagine like a two or three hour version of this film be um, weird, yeah yeah it, it would be and in that interview he says that he realized that the film was going to be long after spending time with with one family and saw right away just how many places all the conversations went and yeah. and he has the he has this quote that i'll read um the repetitive nature of the conversations and the echoes of these conversations for example a doctor might have originally had a conversation about termination of treatment with a family member the doctor would then tell the nurse about the talk the family member would tell another family member who would then have a meeting with two other family members and then would call up a third. Then conversation would be reported in a nurse's meeting and then talked about on rounds. What interest, interested me was the process. So, you know, we talk about process all the time. Meet, Belfast, Deaf and Blind, all about the process. But, um, and this, it just necessitates that 
that length. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't know. You can't, you know, if you're, if you're cutting it down to uh, abridge those conversations or where all they kind of go, it, it's just a different, it's, a, it's, it's not what he saw. Well, I mean, I guess we could, we could touch a little bit on Alan King's film, Dying at Grace, um, mm-hmm. which is a two hour film uh, about two and a half. death and dying. Three and a half? Right? Two and a half. Two and a half, yes. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that film is a bit more what one might expect going into near death in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, being present with dying people, not necessarily getting into, you know, there are some scenes of like nurses talking to each other, but it's much, much more about the patients, I think, than near death is, right? Like, and, and just sort of the experience of being present in, that space and occupying that perspective knowing that and and two those those folks i think are a bit more you know nobody dies of like quote old age but they don't have these kind of acute conditions that we're seeing in the mickey here right like Mm -hmm. they're they're overall more cognizant they have more personality uh uh than present you know displayed and and because of that i think there's there's even allowed to be a bit more uh levity uh, throughout the f- that film um but you do you do have to make choices right when you're well, when you're also, cutting that uh, and and also near death also already existed right so alan king didn't want to just you know re- do redo it yeah and 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 that cuts out or you know it doesn't have a lot of the conversations between like near death is is a film about like discourse and mm-hmm. uh and Dying at Grace isn't really like there's there's um, a lot of like patient to uh, healthcare provider um, conversations like that's the majority of it, but um, you don't get a lot of those external conversations between family members and between family members and right. the, the healthcare providers that make Near Death uh, a totally different film. Yeah, and and to the you know, it, I think it has a similar, like kind of unflinching quality about it. You know, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll have these long close-ups of patients, you know, experiencing labored breathing, breathing who appear emaciated and, you know, on, on death's door. Um, but like, like the, uh, there's less of a, a distance, I guess, you know, right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Bec- and and part of that's formal you know it's in color it's shot on dv which gives it a bit of like a home video uh mm-hmm. flavor to it you know for um, sure and i mean you know not not to de- denigrate king's film at all but you know it, it's kind of you you bring up one you, you think of the other um right. and and they're just doing doing different things but i think my my main takeaway was that in, in canada they seem to have a a bit more of like overall holistic idea of of death and dying than than we have it mm. or at least had in, in 87 my takeaway was that you get a beer when you ask <laughs> maybe maybe the case here not, we were, yeah weissman decided not to show us <laughs> one way or the other um, but yeah let's let's do the the review okay. thing there are okay. like a million of them which was also interesting right since coming off of missile and and the talladega films you know it seemed like the writing was relatively sparse but i mean you know there were a bunch of reviews we found this there, time around there are a bunch and it's also starting to get into names that i recognize uh mm-hmm. which is interesting like uh people that are still writing today 
Um, okay, so speaking of which, uh, at the LA Times, I have uh, Robert Kohler, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he says that Wiseman has pushed the documentary form to the limit, inviting our eyes to view pockets of American life we've never seen or would prefer not to see. Um, and he says the doctors and nurses find from time to time the ethical and medical ground moving under their feet, which I think is evocative. Um, and he, so he's obviously quite high on it, um, mm-hmm. and recognizes that it's, uh, quote unquote, far from being a death watch, um, and is much more about dilemmas and how advanced technology is changing the way that we view death, um, yeah. in hospitals or take care of people who are near death. Um, and, uh, which is interesting. It's sort of placing it in context in a way I hadn't specifically thought of how, um, th- how morality is also changing because of technology yeah. um, and practicality in a way that just felt much newer then than now, probably in 89 or 87 when it was shot, um, you know, technology, just different relationship to technology than we we have now yeah i mean that that's something grant touched on um mm-hmm. pretty significantly too this this like humanist technology dialectic right, right. or you know like like ca- kind of something we're we're seeing now <laughs> with like ai art discourse <laughs> you know like like just because we can doesn't mean we should sort of thing mm-hmm. you know like like as it relates to morality you know you would think traditionally in medical fields you know let's keep them living as long as we can but the ability of these life support machines to essentially keep the body you know functioning while there's no real consciousness uh presents this whole new slew of of problems that didn't exist before that were created by the technology uh that was supposedly meant to make things better right 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 um and then uh yeah Kohler was was pretty big on it said it was elegantly powerful film um we talk later with nick about sort of this this idea too of the difference between watching death in a documentary and watching it in a, a narrative film um you know he Kohler says that that uh this uh reveals the big lie of death on tv uh it's never as tidy as it's presented um but he i feel like he did um he didn't fumble the bag but but he he sort of let himself off the hook uh with uh the conclusion which uh Weissman concludes with a paradoxical lifting of his metaphysical head and a resigned shrugging of his shoulders, talking about the the return yeah. to the the you know water uh, that closes the film. Which I mean, you know, is is a take. It's it's not wrong, but I think um, it doesn't really. You you could you could keep doing the work and and try and figure out well what why is Weissman Weissman no, never just shrugs his shoulders I don't think he, <laughs> yeah. you know like he he, like, oh, he God, has some mis- like, yeah yeah, yeah exactly which I mean you know I think there's an undercurrent of that in a lot of these reviews you know it it is just especially these TV reviewers who are just like churning out pieces on a deadline day after day for whatever's on that day you know yeah. like to to give the six hours to watch the film and then to digest <laughs> that and put it in the prose, you know, like, or like, like with I get Death it. and Blind, like the eight, nine hours. It's like, yeah, you watched one. <laughs> yeah. 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 This. So but yeah. yeah. Uh, we have, 
the Buffalo News, uh, Alan Pergament. Um, he talks about how the film was was given a, a deadly time slot, which we talked about. Um, but he quotes the the director of, of oh, broadcasting for the local, <laughs> local channel, who says they they put it at a time when they thought people with VCRs would be able to record it, and says it was the only way they could do it within Wiseman's mandate. Um, and a fair amount of people had VCRs by then, but like six hours is still a lot of time. Like you're getting some <laughs> bad quality on that yeah. six hours. Oh yeah, you gotta you gotta get the EP or the the LP uh, long play blank tapes and yeah. you're, you're probably those were only good for like three hours a piece i think too right. <laughs> so yeah and a little he, glib the uh he has a, a great quote from the director uh from, of broadcasting saying um that he's familiar with wiseman's work and his experience is that wiseman's films are of interest to very few people <laughs> <laughs> which i mean fair <laughs> you know yeah. i mean uh, probably in in a market like buffalo also is a little yeah. different, you know, like, uh, uh, I don't remember if it was a review. Uh, did you read the Philadelphia Inquirer one? Yeah. Second? Yeah. It wasn't a review. Yeah. 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 Um, but like they delayed the airing of near death because they had like a locally produced series about the mafia the high in yeah, Philadelphia. Mafia yeah. Yeah. Mob fathers. fathers. <laughs> so they, so they pushed the airing a week to run it against the Super Bowl. <laughs> so nice. like, yeah, just uh, a lot of programming difficulties for PBS affiliates on this one. Uh, but you know, props to, pbs you know national and dc for saying you know we you gotta air this in one chunk yeah for sure um there's the newsweek review by fh waters who is very high on the film he talks about the uh mix of patients and family as one realm of the film and and the medical staff's questions and discussions as another realm um he says that that second realm uh asks at what point does the medical technology used to sustain life merely prolong suffering um and says that no other documentary has provided such insights to the medical mind. And then he talks, talks a bit about the various tactics the doctors take when talking to families. Mm -hmm. Um, so decent. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, the medical mind thing, I think seems to be the, the key for him on this, you know, just, just being, uh, privy to all those conversations, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, I'm sure as a patient, you know, you see them in the hallway and you're like, what the fuck are they talking about out there? Why can't I be there? You know, listening, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, right. So, so that's, that's kind of a privileged thing. Um, and, um, the, the hero of the film for him is, is Dr. Scott, this kind of the younger, more, more arguably more oh, cynical sure. of, of the yeah. two main doctors, Dr. Scott and Dr. Taylor. Um, I love he you know he's he's super articulate and and uh well reasoning and you you really don't want to argue with anything he's saying here um at any given point but you know there there is the sense i think that's like you know especially relating him to dr taylor like nick says just what the the mustache doctor yeah 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 you know who is just such like a caring attentive listener you know dr scott is a bit younger and and maybe just carries a bit more practicality in his approach he doesn't he doesn't want to give anyone false hope i think and he wants he wants to do what's like 
for lack of a better word, like objectively the best course of action every time, you know, and, and by and large, what, what it seems like he advocates for more often than not is, I mean, what I do is I stop all stuff and give them morphine at this point. Yeah. Let's manage their pain, make them comfortable, Comfort, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, it's worth noting that Dr. Taylor is a physician and, uh, you know, isn't, he doesn't work in the ICU. Mm. Um, he just kind of, has patients that are in there uh, sometimes, but um, which is a different job than somebody who is just kind of managing all of these dying people. Um, but anyway, uh, there's a couple from the Globe and Mail. Um, one from David Livingstone. Livingston. Uh, he's very high on the film, um, and he does what a lot of. Uh, Critics do. He just kind of makes a taxonomy of images and sounds that make up the film's ambience and and this like taxonomy of evocative lines we hear spoken and um, seems in part to be an interview. Um, well, we got that. He gets a great a great little soundbite from Weissman. Uh, I, I'm against death, but I don't know any remedy for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which I've seen a couple places throughout this, but uh, he says Wiseman always shoots in black and white, which is like, okay. Yeah. Um, but it's not too not too analytical, but it, it's kind of like par for the course for a lot of these. Yeah. Yeah, he, you know, par for the course invo- invocation of Beckett also, you know. Oh, um, right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, he brought it up. So I think Fred's said pretty clearly why he shot this in black and white and it seems to be mostly aesthetic he says i like i like the way it looks <laughs> you know tip, typical kind of weissman answer um but you know what 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 was your sense because you know we it, it it is a bit jarring the past five films were color films you know so i mean i think i think there's probably a budgetary consideration knowing how much they shot yeah. relative to the previous films you know more more 80 hours there so yeah. you know shooting on black and white is going to be much much more cost effective to do that um, and the aesthetic concerns are probably real in a way that like he's going to be shooting under these neon lights all the time mm-hmm. um well, instead of use get... like super fast stock you know so they could use the available lighting yeah right yeah which would just look worse with uh color film i'm sure at that price point um but I don't know. I think he's he's acting instinctually, like you know, in, he, he's just uh, working off of instincts of what he thinks fits the material. Yeah. Um, it lends itself, you know. I don't know. I don't know if timeless is too big a word, but um, it. I, I think it works really well, especially with. I think the compositions that Davy that Davy gets um, of a lot of the patients and families um, just works really well in black and white um for lack of a better word so i don't really have like a an educated like answer about it but like i said i think he's just working off of instincts in it yeah. and it looks good <laughs> yeah i mean it, it is a bit hard to conceive of this film as a color film you know like like um you know dying at grace kind of thing yeah we, we've talked before about just kind of the inherent distancing of that black and white offers which could be a, a bit of a self-preservation thing for or, or a bone to throw the viewer you know we're not going to show you all the red uh when right. charlie, charlie Sparaza comes in you know and it's all hands on deck kind of thing you know like so um thank you <laughs> guys for shooting this in black and white um but but yeah you know he 
he says he likes it, so I'll I'll take that at face value. But but yeah, I have to I have to think budget budget played as a role as well, because this is the last one, right? No more black yeah. and white. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. yeah. Um, Globe and my the other Globe and Mail is by John Hazlitt Cuff. <laughs> and he's, I remember this one. <laughs> he seems unfamiliar with Wiseman's work. Um, says that there's nothing else like it on TV. Um, he has problems with the pace, but he approaches the film pretty respectfully and uh, says he's remarkably empathetic towards his subjects, Wiseman is, and calls him a cinematic Socrates in that he's posing very complex questions about life and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the pace he calls paralytic, and he also says it has numbing austerity, <laughs> <laughs> which which is nice that he comes around by the end of it. I think the last line is just how wonderful that such a film exists. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like great. Okay, yeah, that's, I, I'm, that's, uh, the, that's that's the journey of the first time TV reviewer. You know, <laughs> like hopefully, that's the, I, I ideally, I yeah. That's the, I didn't watch all six hours. <laughs> totally. Um, New Republic, uh, by Arthur Kleinman. Um, this is a long one, but he, he spends the first like eight paragraphs talking about, uh, life expectancy and larger questions about dying in a hospital in the Western world. And then spends like the next three graphs talking about the hospital Beth Israel and these very extra textual, extra textual terms, and then kind of writing out the plot of the movie. So it's like, okay, when does the actual review start? Uh, eventually he does get to some original thoughts and, and he says we begin to wonder if a culture that insists on personal autonomy and individual choice even at the final moment might be making dying more not less difficult mm. um, so I think he comes around to some uh, to actually say something which is nice um, because that's a really interesting existential question that the film does raise um, and he goes on to ask more questions um, like about how we've empowered health professionals and the way that Americans or Westerners in general maybe have chosen to systematically confront death, which, like I said, is very much part of the film. Um, and he ends up saying that the film is, is ultimately frustrating because there are too many questions. <laughs> and and he's, he calls the film self-indulgent because it right. has a, a too narrow a focus. Um, so... Yeah, the, Mixed it, bag. it was an interesting one. Um, you know, you you hear him say that, and um, he also, I think, similar to one of the reviewers who read about multi-handicap, it was like you know it requires the patience of one of the t-shirts to watch. Yeah, yeah, to watch right. the film. Like he was saying that uh, he kind of lamented that you don't get to really know any of the subjects, saying that it's limited in the same way as the institution is. Like you know, ding ding, <laughs> you yeah, did it. You, right. figured, you, you stumbled upon the point. Um, but uh, the yeah, the film replicates the weaknesses of the institutional setting it documents. The Mickey is a way station, which you know, feature not a bug for for me right, at least. Exactly. So, was he one of the ones that was like? Did he, we should have gone home with some of the family. Yeah, family. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, but despite all this, he ends up giving the film an A. <laughs> yeah. Was, <yeah, yeah. laughs> <laughs> you know, typical uh, TV review stuff. But I, I, I did, um, I was interested in a bit more, the extra textual stuff, a bit more than, than uh-huh. you might have been. Um, you know, the thing about life expectancy in the mid 80s was interesting to me. Uh, because that has gone down like 10 years uh, now. I think <laughs> our life expectancy in the U.S. is about 74. 
um, which was is all all of the subjects um, with the one um, notable exception are are in their early seventies. Uh, the yeah, ones we, well, we follow. Wiseman's working on up in the average. Oh, true. Yeah, keep keep on keeping on, Fred. <laughs> um, uh, but a couple ideas that that really resonated with me um, is there's this there's this almost certainty we have that death occur our death a natural death in the u.s occurs in the hospital but also that dying in the hospital is like not how anybody wants to go right Mm -hmm. but but we we just accept that as being the the case though as 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 flawed as it is so there's there's an interesting uh dialectic there and then this idea that um how much relative to like the involving of family members in the decision making says it it typifies the american virtue of personal individual choice right to the bitter end uh which is you know maybe what what some of the the europeans uh were responding to you know it's just like why why are you even doing that you know like they don't know you know you're the you're the knowledgeable expert you know it's it's on you to see this through to the best possible outcome which is so funny to think about. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, we have Janet Maslin in the New York Times. Um, she's high on the film. She has a good line about how the length uh, of the film allows the viewer and the film to move from initial r- raw emotional response to the calmer consideration of, of the ethical questions raised uh, to some sort of resolution, um, which I like. Um, and she says that the, the doctors are as young and energetic as their patients are weak and old, um, which is interesting. Um, she says near death focuses on just where life ends and how it's ending can best be handled. Um, and she applauds the families for allowing Wiseman to film. Yeah. He says they, they did a, a invaluable contribution. Um, you know, I think something, some, some other folks express as well that, you know, it's just, a great thing that that this exists um and gratitude to those involved um the the discrepancy is interesting um the age discrepancy uh because there there is this vitality on one side of mm-hmm. the, all of these conversations that is absent uh on the other side of the hospital bed and like i think in in bernice's scene you know talk to you and find out what you'd like us to do about the tube, okay, the breathing tube. You tired of talking about it? We want to find out what you want to do, okay? You're the boss. You don't know? You're not sure what... Remember I told you yesterday what the two choices were. Basically, I mean, I think that we can try to take the tube out and not put it back in the way we did this last time. But there's a good chance that if we do that, that, you know, you may die. And I think the other possibility is to do an operation and to put a hole here and put a permanent tube in here. Okay? Do what's called the tracheostomy. And when Anne Louise and I, the nurse right over there, when we talked to you yesterday, I got the impression that what you wanted to do was to have the tube out and 
uh, uh, not have it put back in, but I really, it's important for me to know what you want because Dr. Curlin's going to come back here today and he's going to want to, he's going to want to know too. You don't know. You don't, it's hard for you to make up your mind. It's a tough choice. It's a pretty tough choice, you're right. It's not a, not a good choice. I mean, I think that um, it's very important for us to do what you, what you want. And I, I think that knowing, even knowing those choices, okay, it's hard for somebody who's not a, you know, not a doctor to know um, what's the right thing to do. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, how you feel about what's happened so far in the hospital. Um, my sense of things is is that um, you know if you really want to go on and you want to live and you want to keep going that the tube here is the thing to do to do the tracheostomy Sorry, I didn't. I didn't, I didn't catch that. Are, are you saying that you, that you still can't decide between the two, Bernice? Is that what yeah. you're saying? Okay. Do you need more time to think about it? All right. Well, that's all right. It's all right. You got as much time as you want. They keep prodding her for a decision, right? And she's like barely there, you know. And and she just ends with like a faint wave of the wrist, like you know, let me think about this, you know. But right, they, right. they keep asking and they keep asking and they keep asking and just, you know, I, it, I guess the literal bedside manner idea, right? Like like this this that whole thing. So like um, finding that bridge, you know, that spans decades uh and and experiences is is just like how how beyond you know the medical necessity like how how are these two sides connecting on a human level is something that the film spends a lot of time exploring yeah it's interesting and uh not a lot of people wrote about that so thanks janet (laughs) um variety lawrence cone here we go Opens with a full quote about tedium. And then uh, Cohn says the filmmaker of the great hospital has fallen in love with his footage. Uh, says the doctor, discussions are endless. And because they're inarticulate, they're unable to inform the viewer like a good research doc. <laughs> um, he belabors points about what doctors should do to prolong life as if to impart something on dim-witted viewers. Yeah. Um, and says a, a hard-nosed editor could cut it down to two hours <laughs> and an even better one could get it to 30 minutes. Insane. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like in, insulting to everybody involved, you know, insulting yeah. to the, to the subjects in the film and something, yeah. uh, Weissman insulting the viewers, you know, like, like just the, and, and like, you know, Loki insulting to himself, uh, that, that he, just kind of takes it at this the surface like i've seen this scene i've seen this idea expressed already like you know yeah um but it's like i don't see how this is going to be used in educational courses at all 
Yeah, yeah, boring and unable to educate the viewer. And he, he's, like you were saying, he's one of these people who wanted interviews with, like, doctors, you know, like, like he wanted direct address, like, ex- explanations about what's going on. Um, and, and yeah, that, that line about the tight half hour with a better editor, that's like, you know, <laughs> Lawrence Cohn, like, turn on your location, like, we're about to throw hands, <laughs> like, you know, like... Like just just completely inept reading, uh, as we've kind of come to expect from Variety, um, but like like how, it, there's no element of like being moved by anything in here. There's no. just like boredom and tedium of somebody who watches TV like all the time. Yeah, it doesn't approach it generously at all. Yeah. Um, we have the Washington Post. I think this is accredited to a G. Boodman. Um, who says that the film is Sandra G. Boodman. Sandra G. Boodman. Okay. So uh, she's talking, she says that the film is talking about what uh, terminally ill means and says that patients are sometimes victims of progress of a system capable of keeping people alive. Um, She calls the film a remarkable achievement. Um, But again, this is, this is, this review is an example of, of what a lot of these are. It's a very high praise without really digging into to what the film does and instead just sort of like recite scenes and lines from, from the film that they think are, are good, uh, which is not criticism. Um, but it's also a symptom of, of this film. Like I said, just being like very self-evident and interesting and fascinating to watch and probably hard to write about right after you're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, she offers a lot of synopsis, um, you know, again, we have the idea that, that everyone involved has performed an invaluable service. Um, and, and that Weissman has made, you know, a remarkable achievement. Um, you know, the, the one thing I got was it, it seemed like in Washington, it got the best time slot of any of the broadcasts we saw just on a Sunday afternoon. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this idea, you know, we've touched on the, the uh, fallacy, the logical fallacy that, you know, technological progress equals like progress, progress, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's, that's pretty covered, but like, you know, there, there, there has to be a point of diminishing returns and you wonder, I, I was curious watching the film, like, you know, where, where does a lot of this stuff stand today? You know, you, you think medical invention and and progress just keeps going and things get better and better and we can keep people alive you know substantively longer and longer i i have no idea one way or the other if that's actually the case but that's sort of the the popular conception of like you know science and technology which you know is falling apart all around us uh that that idea but but i i am curious kind of you know looking back for, for doctors today in a MICU dealing with similar circumstances, you know, if they watch this film, how, how much it would resonate, uh, to their like current predicaments. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. My dad used to work on machines in in, uh, like hospital bedrooms, but, uh, so I should have asked, prepared. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> somebody, have- somebody write us an email, let us know. How they yeah. do it. Um, we have, uh, I think the last one I have at least is the British Medical Journal, Tony Delamoth. Um, 
who talks about how different things are are in America, like like you and I talked about earlier, compared to British ICUs, and talks about the the remarkable way that the doctors have learned to, how to talk about death, um, and it's all pleasant. And then at the end, he's like, "This film has relevance that his earlier docs, like basic training, high school, law and order, don't, which are only of historical importance." I was like, uh, "What? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right." Yeah, uh, watched on Channel 4, um, which provided funding for the film. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, it, it, it seems like uh, more of a curiosity about like those yanks over the pond, you know, that, mm-hmm. that the, the sort of like existential, like universal humanistic uh, themes of the film aren't of much consideration for him for one reason or another. Um, right. And, you know, he, he also mischaracterizes the early films, you know, saying they're outdated, you know, they only hold historical value now, um, but, but does say that, that near death will have more legs. Um, so, so mixed bag. Um, but yes, you know, I, I guess also important to note that, that this is a medical writer, you know, so, so their interest is largely going to be around medical practices and, and noting those differences right. in practices across countries than like examining the text, I guess, you know? Um, but I, I did have a couple more. Did you, oh, did, did, you? did you get the after image one by Edward Ball? No, I must've missed um, that. It was a capsule review after the New York Film Festival, uh, which was also when uh, Maslin and and, uh, Larry Cohn at Variety were writing about it. Uh, He called it wake length. (laughs) And he he mischaracterized, he says the film is a document of euthanasia, which is not Not what's happening. (laughs) Um, uh, Goes on to levy an attack of prurient voyeurism which I found pretty bizarre. Is it, you know, is that maybe just kind of, uh, was, re- wait, re- there was one, there was one review, uh, that was talking about, um, you got to think about how the families were acting differently with the camera there. Oh yeah. I, I don't know if this was that yeah. one, but just but like, give it a break. He, he calls, he calls it pornographic. He, like, oh, weird. yeah right because of the divide between subject and audience and it's like no nobody can ever make a movie about this nobody can ever watch him like there's a I, I think there are actually some examples where a dying person like has self-documented you know but like like yeah, you're, yeah. You're, by and large like a person making a movie about this is not going to be, you know, dying. Right. Like, so that's a weird criticism to be making. Uh, he says it's passionate, uh, but exploitative. Um, and I thought he, he told on himself, he says audiences will know what's in store before the film even starts, uh, which is not my experience, you know, I know. So, so uh he says Weissman refuses to grow or change his approach um which again I think he does in this film more than any other so you know this guy seems to have like a general sense that like titty cut follies in high school happened existed 
and and like you know I, I don't know if he saw any films in between but like he I think he's he seems to be hanging on to that muckracker conception sure you know that is sure. just like not at all present in this film to me at least um there was also a, a recent review uh not coming Andrew oh, Blatt's yeah, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. in uh, 2008 um, some interesting musing on the idea of manipulation both like from the doctors and Weissman right. you know um, uh, but I, I did think he he came came off a bit glib to me uh, because yeah. he says he says that the topic barely compares to others that Weissman has covered which is like you know doesn't what, really warrant the time or the length what metric are you going <laughs> you know yeah, like, yeah yeah and 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 because it's so ingrained in our upbringing which is like I I think that's what the film's kind of working against, right? Is that we don't have these conversations. So I think that that's a major assumption uh, that's being made here. So yeah, was was not on the same wavelength of Baltz there. He has an interesting note at the end about like a scene that is edited by Wiseman of like the tube going up and the janitors coming out and how Mm -hmm. it like kind of. uh how they're just there to like lift up the people that are there and after they're gone it's cleaned up that it was interesting he was thinking about the editing in a way that i wasn't but Mm -hmm. um but yeah i don't know but yeah the manipulation stuff in that is is more interesting the i mean you know it's impossible to see a tube in a weissman movie and not think of bollies right like you know there's there is that just like pervading reverberation of of that scene um so we there there is that to contend with but i mean it's a different tube with a different guy different purpose different doctor you know but but uh ironically both life-sustaining you know a feeding tube uh albeit against that one guy's will and follies um so yeah that was an interesting thing to consider certainly um yeah, those are most of the reviews. I mean, there's there's some writing. Uh, um, I mentioned that that uh, dissertation. Uh, there's a brief chapter in the MoMA monograph that that covers this mm-hmm. film, and um, but doesn't offer a ton of insight. Um, and uh, there was something in the MoMA piece that I I liked the way that. So um, I guess. Uh, I was thinking about how near death fits within Wiseman's broader filmography uh, at that time, at least uh, that it came out. And like you mentioned, Grant talks about how it has this like humanistic concerns of a scene and deaf and blind. And then um, with also the institutional and technological structures that he says, you know, threaten those humanistic concerns. Um, and MoMA piece talks about near death in context with Titicut follies and hospitals, since they all take place in a hospital. Um, and that article says that near death offers an antidote to those films. Um, it, in so many words, it says that it kind of counters the treatment and follies and the chaos in hospital. Um, and I, I think it's also in that piece that they, they quote Wiseman saying his experience at, at Beth Israel, it was redemptive, which I say later. Um, which I think is a, a really productive way to consider near death um, as 
an experience filled with with a patience and a consideration and a credit to everyone involved um and with this gravity um without dipping into sentiment um that he's able to achieve yeah yeah i i I highlighted that same passage just you know the the uh relative peace of death to the chaos of life uh, in the other two medical films prior um but that that redemptive thing i mean i think it's worth kind of reading out that quote in full um sure so so he said shooting near death was an amazing personal experience uh, during which he came to terms with his own mortality. And he said it, it was a privilege to be in the intensive care unit, to have the opportunity to see what goes on. I was particularly struck by the courage of the patients and the compassion of the staff. I found it absolutely remarkable. The sense of community in the intensive care unit, there was something very redemptive about it. And and I remember when we spoke with Robert Greene, like he, he said he felt but making this film changed Weissman in, in some oh, right. way, you know, like, like, so I, I wonder, you know, it'd be interesting that's to not ask a quote that, that, I mean, that's not on par with his usual like quotes about totally. Things. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, well, there's a, an interview on another podcast, a deep cut podcast, um, that was mostly about, uh, a couple, a couple, but um, I, I think they might have asked him about the experience mm-hmm. of shooting near death. And I think he might have offered a bit more of a typical Weissman throwaway yeah, answer he about did, it. He did yeah. the, the like remedy line or something like that or um, something akin to I'm against death, but I haven't figured out a way to avoid it yet or something like that. I can't remember. But um, yeah, I... I that interview is interesting. So this is a recent interview with Wiseman and the interview or the podcast is called deep cut. Um, and kind of like before kind of going to that preface this by saying, by, by thinking more about death as a Wiseman theme. Yeah. And which, you know, we've talked a lot about, uh, here and there, but, um, we talked about it with him too. Talked about it with him. And, but it's obviously present in something like meat. Um, primate the end of canal zone is all you know yeah graveyard um and it's suggested in other films uh, or it's in and he'll hospital. go on to put it in the films right know. yeah the store even has you know like the the furs um, mm-hmm. and the military films uh, obviously imply death um and missile i guess that's military film but uh but it will go on, like you said, to be a very pronounced theme. Stuff with Zoo and Belfast and state legislature and Monrovia um, and even City Hall uh, somewhat, like, all deal with death. Um, and I'm interested going forward uh, in this project how discussions and handlings regarding death scene and near death will reverberate, reverberate over those. Like, how we will, if, if it will change how we see his handling of death. But... Um, this this recent podcast, it was uh, mainly covering a couple, like you said, and it was interesting to hear him talk about how present death is in nature in the garden uh, of a couple. Uh, he, he's talking about the animals that are seen going into the garden or going into the water and how they're going in there to kill. Um, and he talks about how it's violent, but most importantly, he, he talks about the ambivalence of nature and um, its treatment of death. And he, spe- he specifically says Darwinian. 
um, which I think is interesting to bring up because it's very reflective of his filmmaking and how he depicts death, which uh, Rippold uh, and I were talking uh, in the second half uh, with regards to, to an author that uh, Wiseman apparently likes. Um, but um, it's one of the reasons why this film, Near Death, isn't reliant on like eliciting visceral reactions, like the sadness of death. Uh, because he's he's viewing it as a natural process and how it's being interrupted by technology and, and bureaucracy and how technology has shaped the way we die. Um, and in the film, the technology is, is explained as like tools used to prolong life um, so that families have the time to be able to accept the possibility of death, um, which is not Darwinian at all. Um, and you know, it's not the sanctioned death of animals and like meat or, or primate. Um, so with this film, he's, he's really like exposing how humans are dealing with death. And within the context of his filmography, we're able to see how that's different than how animals treat death or even how humans treat the death of animals. So I think it's interesting to place it within death within his films. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's near death, but it's, it's also, I guess, the denial of death. You know, I, I think I think it's it's the denial that society carries, uh, you know, until you're forced to confront it. Which I think, you know, Rapold later talks about COVID, and I mean, like that's that's kind of the situation we all found ourselves in, right? Suddenly, we're confronted with mass death uh, constantly, and after you know shunting it off for most of our lives except when it may have come up in like personal situations um but i mean that's that's also the you know this this is one of those classic double entendre titles for weissman right Right. it's like it's like the proximity to death for the patients but also for for the families and the doctors who are near the dying you know uh and 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 we talk about how their vocabulary is always near death it's not right it it approaches death yeah (laughs) Um, and, and two, I think, you know, we always talk about language with Weissman, but, um, another good bit in that, uh, inquirer piece is, is just talking about the double meanings of doctors speaking to patients, uh, and, and Weissman speaking to us as viewers, you know, phrases like, can you hear me? Uh, how are you feeling today? What do you think? What is your sense of what is going on? You know, like, like that was a big one. Um, uh, but just just these ways that that I guess he's he's kind of checking in and and that's probably part of the repetitions we see in this film is is you know uh, I guess t- going against that varieties guy that 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 it's for the benefit of of like dim-witted viewers um, yeah, but yeah. It, it's it's more to the part of of emphasis right uh, to 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 emphasize uh, that these conversations and like philosophical quandaries are like ever present even as we seek to deny them as we seek to not engage with them they're always there and they're always happening and there there's that's the thing about the medical films especially too you know like hospital has that great closing shot across the highway you know like looking at metropolitan like this is the world outside that that 
you know, segregates all of this activity within the walls of this one building, right? And and we have something similar going on here where this is the place where death happens and this is the place where, you know, uh, we it's okay to engage uh, with all the things that we tr- strive so much to, to put at the margins. Yeah, Grant recalls that in, in like the last page of his book, that shot in hospital. Um, and he talked to us about it, I believe, as well. It's clearly very important to him uh, as it rings uh, elsewhere throughout. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I like that Mamber talks, uh, of course, very highly of Davy and in his work. Totally. Kind of talks about it in terms that no one else uh does uh i mean nobody really talks about davy but um but talks about not just composition but mainly the patience involved to be able to do this and like how they don't just show up and they go okay well this is happening over here go do it like um and how uninteresting it could be composition wise to if you're the film or if you're the uh, cinematographer to be just shooting this for hours, this sort of like same type of scene, but like he just has a real patience that um, uh, really comes comes through and, and um, is important to the way that um, Wiseman structures, you know, the 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 film in so in, in as much as like getting to feel like you're spending time listening to people talking and you're not watching like a cinematographer like manipulate Mm -hmm. uh, space um, or um, shooting it to their whim kind of thing. No. And you know, he, he, all, all of his shots here are so thoughtfully composed um, and, and like, you know, having, having done some shooting um, there, I think is a tendency to um, distance yourself from like the reality of, that you would be experiencing where you're not holding a camera, right. You to try and be looking for those good shots and compositions, um, and, and maybe distance yourself from the events. And I, I feel like that had to be happening for, for Davy at least to do this over the course of weeks, you know, to go in yeah. anew every day, knowing exactly <laughs> what you were going to get into, you know, like, like I, I, I would imagine it, probably would become a bit of an intellectual exercise to see like all right how how am i going to represent this cinematically you know um uh, yeah. and, and he he does such a good job at it because you know <laughs> maybe he's, he's running away from from the topic of it i don't, I don't want to put words in his mouth but like like I'd, I'd be curious to ask him about just the the experience of that and and if it provoked you know a greater uh, uh kind of thoughtful approach to to where he was putting his camera yeah, uh, I bet he was thrilled to shoot Central <laughs> Park. Uh, yeah, where he yeah, could right. shoot landscapes yeah. and people and be outside and not be in a hospital for six weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's I'm curious too if that was the case for Weissman to be like, you know, get me the fuck out of death, <laughs> you know, the missile yeah. and and then uh, near death, like like let's go to the park, you know, let's. Uh, but then. You know, that's not a film totally avoid of, of death, death and no. dying uh, by any stretch. So, you know, consistent theme. Um, one, one thing, I guess, I, I would like to call out very minor, but we talk later about how, like, 
relative to Weissman, that that sort of trademark absurdity isn't really present here, probably in deference to the, you know, gravity of the material. Um, But there was one shot that felt (laughs) like he was throwing us a bone and I was cracking up just because there was nothing to laugh at. But he's just shooting a phone and it's got a big uh, label on it that says do not use this phone and then it rings and then somebody picks it up and starts talking <laughs> there's but, another yeah, funny yeah. shot of medical treatment god i can't remember it i posted it but uh god uh it had a funny note on it as well oh well um, it, was it the 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 flatline scene the scene where we see someone die right at, at, at the the ekg like the beep beep has has a note on it uh that yeah, I forgot what it says. Shoot, uh, do do not switch off power switch. It's a, it's like yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Please, please do yeah, not do yeah. that. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and also that it's just like written up there on the little sticky note. Uh, but uh, Grant talks about how the film is challenging in terms of uh, the absurdity i don't know it's kind of hard to parse but he was kind of talking about this like weird space that the viewer is navigating uh of his perspective Mm -hmm. um that had to do with with uh crediting his absurdity but Mm. um well um just just talking about that scene you know a, a couple of things formally i thought were interesting throughout but but one was in this scene of um the the cutting back and forth between like the intending physician and and that machine that that readout um mm-hmm. it's kind of like it's it's pretty dramatic it, it almost feels like a, a hospital drama the way you know <laughs> you're seeing the lines go up and down you're seeing her looking at the lines looking at the patient cutting back and forth you know and there there was actually an, an earlier moment too uh very early on uh where you know always always with finding the the moments of music but like he's doing kind of a montage of medical equipment uh and patients got like all of the things hooked up to this patient and it's set to like a muzak version of my sharia <laughs> yeah, more yeah. you know and and it was that that's in the beginning right that that's really early on yeah yeah, yeah like yeah. before we meet any of this kind of central really figures but but right. it's like yeah the the it's like spanish classical guitar music and <laughs> yeah. it's very strange uh, yeah it was just these these sort of montages that that's felt a little atypical i guess or the, yeah, the a, yeah. a little a little uh kind of narrative cinema e um but but it was interesting to see him flexing those muscles in the, in this context mm-hmm. for sure um i mentioned uh offhand uh later but just so people don't think I, uh, it, it was me that came up with it, but I believe Peter Cow in a Boston Globe retrospective piece called the oh, right, recurring yeah. janitor shots, uh, the Grim Sweeper. Right, right. Um, uh, but I, we talked, uh, we mentioned a few other films about death and dying and, and um, you know, uh, dying at grace and um, Amor a little bit, but um, one that I watched that I thought was interesting was uh, The Mouth Agape, the mm. Maurice uh, PLA film from the 70s, and um, which I thought was super good and a much different film, but um, about like this wife slash mother um, mm. 
being ill and terminally ill. And it's, it, it gives us a sort of devastating like flip side to uh, the body in the hospital. So the people that we see are in, in near death and it looks at what the family is doing while somebody is dying in the hospital. And what's so sad mm. about it is this recognition of life that is going to go on without you or like that yeah. we know, like these people are just, they're going to go on without her. Um, and so I, I, I thought it offered a really nice uh, flip side uh, or, you know, pairing with, with near death. Yeah, that that is really interesting. Um, well, well, first, just to go back to the, the janitors, we're such a, an interesting, like, visual device in this film. Um, mm-hmm. The way they sort of signify death, you know, like the presence of a janitor is to clean up once the patient is no longer in the bed anymore. Right. right, right. Like, and, and I think it was in Bernice's sequence where there's almost one like cut. So it appears like he's looming almost like a vulture, you know, like, uh, Oh, you better watch out, you know, the janitor, you know, he's getting his bags out, you know, kind of thing. Um, but Fred loves janitors. So I know uh, there's, there's just that too, but yeah. And then, you know, I'll, I'll We'll talk a little later about, you know, just docs that deal with death and dying tend to focus on individuals. Um, I, I do keep a running list on, on Letterboxd just called Death and Dying Docs, but I watched two in the interim uh, since we last recorded, just not even intending, not even knowing that they were uh, on the topic. Um, one was called Sick, The Life and Death of Bob Flanagan, Super Masochist. um but that is a lot how it sounds a guy with cystic cystic fibrosis bob flanagan uh who went who lived much longer than you know the doctors told him he was supposed to uh and embarked on this life of uh super masochism it's a tough watch um but the you know he ultimately succumbs and and you're following his journey and then uh, Southern Comfort, a uh, film by Kate Davis, which um, looks at uh, Robert Eads, who's a transgender man in the South, you know, talking late 90s here, um, and kind of speaking to that, that. This is what prompted me to bring it up is you, you're just talking. Um, oh, sorry, what, what was the film? The name of the film? The, the Mouth Agape. The Mouth Agape. I want to check that out. But, but, it's this kind of thing where Robert's been essentially given a year to live. And so everyone's kind of doing their, all of his family and friends are like kind of doing their, making their last pilgrimages, you know, to make sure that they, they get in, you know, one last visit or something. And, you know, it, it really well documented like this, this, um, uh, uncomfortable, awkward, place where everybody knows kind of that's why they're here and it's what's happening Mm -hmm. but you're trying to act as normal as possible to make it you know uh pleasant as you can for everyone involved you know and i i I just thought that was such a a unique and, and astute like angle to take on this because when when you do have like unlike the cases we see in near death when you do have that sort of broader window of like awareness of the forthcoming death uh how how that changes things you know right huh um just a couple i'll mention too that that i yeah 
a couple I'll mention I really love. Uh, My Love Don't Cross That River, Korean film about uh, a very cute couple until that's not what it's about at all. And sure. <laughs> um, Alan Hicks, 2014 doc, Keep On Keeping On, about... Um, jazz trumpeter clark terry uh it's just a probably the, the sweetest film you'll see uh on this like very grave subject but like I, I really love both of those um and one that's forthcoming uh that i saw on the festival circuit i'd really like people to see i'm not sure when it's going to be available but it's called jack has a plan um uh shot here in san francisco uh Full disclosure, the poster was done by the very same person who created our logo, (laughs) (laughs) my partner, Bernadette. Um, But uh, that is a euthanasia film looking at like the right to die, a right to die case here in California. And just, you know, this terminal patient, Jack, uh, making that decision and like the intense resistance you know you, you could expect that he gets from like friends and family and and how they navigate that and ultimately do come together to perform this act of euthanasia like uh, that it's a, a really good film i i hope it gets huh. out there yeah all right we well, talk i mean you know again like like we were saying though i mean like you know it, it is a bit of a, a what can you say film yeah you know like like it's just like you know we we could we could talk about any number of of elements about like you know at the end of the day it's just like watch it you know you'll get it because like there's and don't be afraid it's all there yeah which i mean i was i was frankly you know i I talked like on a on a, a much older episode i think about you know how my mom died in the hospital when I was young and, you know, I spent a lot of time in the hospital seeing her dying, you know, being at her deathbed and it's like not pleasant, but you know, that's, that's not anything this film, you know, it, it, it has those elements within it, but it, it doesn't, you know, linger on them. It's not the main focus of it. Right. And, right. and it has so much more to offer, uh, and as using that experience and death as a, a entryway into a whole host of just like philosophical topics, you know, part for the course for Weissman. For sure. Well, you can email us at wisemanpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, ask us questions and whatever. Um, and anything else, Arlen? No, I mean, you know, on to greener pastures. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, enjoy our conversation with uh, Nicholas Report.
Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. We're here with our guest, Nick Rapold. Uh, Nick is the critic and journalist for um, many uh, places, New York Times, Sight and Sound, former uh, editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Um, and you have a wonderful podcast, The Last Thing I Saw. Uh, how are you doing, Nick? I'm doing well, about as well as can be expected after re-watching uh, <laughs> Near Death. <laughs> um, a couple of things I wanted to say up top. Um, is just that as film podcasters, Arlen and I, we got to tip our hat to you because uh, you, you know you're you're one of the, the forefathers of the film <laughs> podcast. Uh, you're you're on the the Mount Rushmore of, of film podcasting. <laughs> uh, well, that's very kind of you to say. Uh, I, I, I I am aware there are there are hundreds of podcasts out there, so. The, the fact that anyone uh, just even finds my podcast and, and takes more than a minute on it, I'm appreciative. But that's that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> um, and also, uh, Arlen and I had talked uh, a while back when this came out. Um, uh, but your accumulative coverage of uh, a couple uh, across New York Times and Sight and Sound and, and the podcast was really terrific. And um, I know for me, and I think for Arlen, it's it was just nice for like Wiseman heads like ourselves to be able to like rely on somebody doing it justice, because um, especially a project like that that's so specific and strange, you get a lot of like just repetitive uh, reviews. But yeah, it was it was very good. Yeah, so, yeah. No, I mean, as you can imagine, it's it's. I mean, obviously, it's very central for Wiseman heads, as as, as you said, um, but. In the larger scheme of things, you know, it's a, you know, idiosyncratic adaptation of, <laughs> of uh, Tolstoy's partner's letters. And so, and, and a single person film as well. So for a lot of people, it's not, uh, it's not as prominent on the radar. And that includes a number of publications. I mean, I'll freely say here that, you know, it's, it's not always been, um, yeah, some of his films have not always been like surefire pitches for, for, for different no. publications, and and but of course, from you know, I'm like, what are you talking about? This is obviously, <laughs> don't you want a, something on the some, some new film by the greatest filmmaker alive? <laughs> sort of like silence, do, you know. <laughs> do Do you feel that yeah, like as as you make your pitches and and have conversations with editors that there's just sort of an accumulated gravitas around Weissman now that it's just like, it ma- makes your job on that end a little easier. It, I mean, it does and it doesn't, uh, people know who he is, I think, but still it depends a little on the movie and, and how, you know, how broad it's, it's appeal uh, is, you know, or if it has some other, it gets its hooks into something else through the subject matter. Uh, I mean, Tolstoy, you know, uh, no slouch himself. So that's, <laughs> That's definitely, you know, something that's interesting to people. Um, but yeah, I mean, but honestly, it's, I mean, if you ask Wiseman, I think if you ask him about funding and whether it's easier now that he's, uh, you for know, sure. yeah. like, again, like the greatest <laughs> living documentary filmmaker, and he'll probably say, honestly, not necessarily, you know, it's, it's still, it's still a hustle. Um, uh, I mean, I'm sure, you know, there are definitely advantages, but you know, and and then with with articles, it can be the same way. You know, it, it, it's still you have to make a case for it. Um, but yeah. Hmm. Um, so, what, how did you get into Wiseman? What was your introduction? I mean, the first Wiseman I saw, it's a little foggy for me what that must have been. I mean, I, I honestly 
don't really remember. I mean, it may have been in, in college or right after college, and it would have been like a library um, VHS. It probably was high school, if I really think about it, as it is for a lot of people, I think, since that's a staple of um, syllabuses. It's often like the one movie that a place, uh, an institution might have if they have one. Um, and uh, so that was probably the beginning. And I don't know that I had a deep appreciation of it. I have to d give credit probably for having seen all the films, at least, uh, and having made me see all the films. Uh, I was commissioned to write a feature for Sight and Sound. Um, I don't know exactly when it was, maybe 2009 or so. Um, and that was like dream assignment. Um, you know, and I think it was right as the DVDs uh, had been mm. made available. Oh, yeah. Uh, which in itself, you know, as, as you know, was such a huge event. I mean, because his movies, I mean, it's like they were locked up in institutions because that's how right. you could see them usually was through, mm -hmm. uh, you know, educational, soul, educational sold um, VHSs that would be. But with the DVDs, it was like everyone could get one. Um, I got my box. Uh, I think... Uh, I think his company even tried to get them back from me after I wrote the article. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and I was like, uh, I don't know. I seem to have misplaced them every single time you ask. Um, so, yeah. But then eventually it was okay with them, just to clarify. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that was it. And I watched all of them to that point. Um, the latest, I don't know what the latest would have been at that point necessarily. And then I ended up just, I mean, I think, at Berkeley was a big movie. It might have been the first um, that he premiered at Venice in a while or at all. And as soon as he started just premiering at Venice, uh, because he has you know um, people who really appreciate his work there, uh, that I think put him on a radar in the same way that the DVDs did a little. Um, but yeah, that was when I was watching just all of them. Uh, and I, I probably have described this before somewhere. Uh, I you know. I went watching 30, 35 of his movies in the space of, you know, a week or two. Um, you just, you become completely immersed in his, you know, you know, the phrase like the Kino eye, like uh, you uh -huh. know, Bertrand yeah, or yeah, something. I was like sure. wise, Wiseman eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I had. And you just, you're looking at everything and it's, you know, it's like the Terminator readouts on, it. you know, it's like, you know, everything you're just <laughs> analyzing the way he might, the seven different resonances he's finding and it passes. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's pretty intense and, and just yeah. honestly still one of my top, I probably, I mean, have to say my top like viewing experience. Huh. That's interesting. That reminds me of some, something we've talked on here about before of being like stuck in a place publicly where you might not like want to be, you know, like a DMV type of situation. And you like, t you tap into that Wiseman eye and you're like, oh, I can, <laughs> I can handle this. I can appreciate yeah. what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think too there must have been, you know, at that time watching them all in quick succession when DVDs have just come out like some some kind of a secret private pleasure to it too. Like I think I think that's that's part of it. Uh at least for me, you know, running my first couple um from on DVD from a video store is like, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a sense I'm not supposed to be, have access to this because I'm not, right. you know, in an institution, and there there are people who want to watch this um, that that you know don't have the the luxury of a video store nearby, you know. So like, especially back then, I mean, now it's 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 much uh, more accessible, but you know, it, uh, it sounds sounds like a, a special week. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think <laughs> the, the the place where I had to track down some that weren't even on on DVD, they hadn't gotten to yet, maybe like racetrack or something. For some reason, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they game these things up. They're like racetrack, probably not going to be a big seller. I don't know, but uh, uh, I saw that like at NYU, I think, uh, at the Bob's mm-hmm. Library, um, or th- like this Avery Fisher Center, which I don't, they they probably redesigned it or renovated it. But at the time, it, it was just these ancient seeming cubicles and and, and, and everything and um, yeah, very, uh, felt like a very analog, uh, experience seeing those and also just having to get into the library, university library, whatever. Um, but yeah, yeah, happily now people can see them. And then there was then going to streaming, which would have been unheard of. Um, and that's sort of an odd story itself mm-hmm. His willingness, um, you know, to, to make things available in that fashion after a while. Um, and I think originally he was pretty resistant to having things on streaming because I think he said that he just the deals they were offering him were just not yeah. really something, you know, he says right. like, I'm a filmmaker and I like to eat. I think it's what he says. <laughs> yeah, <We're> just, yeah. <laughs> at all. Did you, I, I, I have to imagine you had a sight and sound uh, vote this, this, <laughs> I, you mean the greatest, greatest yeah, of all yeah. time? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you happen to put a Wiseman on yours? I definitely did. I can honestly say that I've sort of forgotten what I put on uh, <laughs> by now. I mean, I, I there is a Wiseman. I'm actually fairly certain it was near death actually that I put, and I don't. I don't even know if we had finalized whether we were going to um, do this by then. Um, so yeah, seems seems to cover a lot of ground. So yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Choice. Interesting. I was just thinking about it because you know the the expanded list was released and it wasn't on. Or n- n- no, wise none of made, none of them. The, yeah. the no kidding. Pizza. Yeah, I, I I heard the list went up, but I hadn't seen what the, I mean, what the point levels are for like number two fifty. Maybe just didn't yeah. I, well, I think that that'll be out in March when they do the individual ballots. We'll be able to see like how many votes everyone got, even even those outside the two fifty. At least that's how it was in twenty twelve. But you know, I think when you know we were first voting on this whenever that was last year you know we were talking about how the body of work and just the the like volume of of great films kind of works against him in something like this because there's not like that one consensus pick like um you know one of one of the striking ones in in the expanded list for me was wong bing's west of the tracks which is like relatively inaccessible for most people uh uh in the west um i mean it's on youtube actually but um beyond that there's no like official releases but like you know you say wang bing that's the first film that you're gonna think of right he has a bunch of others that are great but like like that's the one but like there's no the one film for weissman in, in that kind of way right like like you have near death, you know, we had welfare. Sean also had Belfast. Um, uh-huh. People are, are going to have follies on there. They're going to have high school, high school you know? Yeah. So like, right. it's, it's just, uh, you know, waters down the, the Weissman vote. So I'm, I'm, I'm starting a, a, a 10 year campaign now for us to figure <laughs> out a, a consensus pick for, for 2033 yeah. because it, it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable yeah. sight and sound voters. Yeah, no, I, that is, I am I am genuinely surprised. I think you're right about the splitting of the vote. I mean, I don't know what's in the 250, but like Cassavetes and uh, Bunuel, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. know that Bunuel appears at all in the top 100, which obviously is completely ridiculous. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah, Wiseman, I would have thought at least people would have plunked, you know, high school down on there. So yeah, 
we'll have to figure something out. <laughs> um, on one of your um, sun, so you you were just covering Sundance, and on, on one of your um, podcasts covering it, uh, you were talking about uh, you were talking with Eric Hines about uh, a still small voice, a documentary that was there, and uh, my ears turned red when when you mentioned near death knowing that, like we were going to talk about it. i was like well uh as a reference point um and how it might be taking broader cues from wiseman or uh, and as well as how it's different but um as, as someone who sees a lot of new cinema um i wanted to ask more broadly if and how you see wiseman's work sort of peak its head as an influence uh in contemporary filmmaking Good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 tough because on a certain level, his influence, I think, uh, you know, among a lot of filmmakers, uh, fiction as well as as documentary, you might not see in terms of something you can point to exactly. Uh, I mean, for example, his editing, I think, is probably hugely influential. Uh, how he builds scenes. Uh, the way he compresses time and the way he distills, you know, the emotions, the ideas in a scene. I probably think there are a lot of people that are really inspired by that and, and take cues from that. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I can't remember a particular interview where someone said to me, oh, yeah, I, you know, the way Scorsese says he has like TCM on while he edits or something. <laughs> but but I, I have to think that sometimes people might look at certain scenes, uh, you know, in, in one of Wiseman's so we can see how he constructs things. I mean, that was something um, I think I came across someone joking about, oh, near death must have been really hard on his editor figuring out. And it's like, <laughs> the editor, you know, I mean, that, it's hard on him, you know. Um, and I think it was uh, a curator at MoMA who for one of the pieces I wrote about Wiseman, he said, like, Wiseman is the best editor alive. Um, mm-hmm, for sure. And, you know, it's, 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 I mean, I'm sure editors don't want to hear, hear that who are only editors. Um, but he, yeah, he's such a strong editor. So I think that's one huge influence that would be hard to, you know, point out necessarily. Um, yeah. And then you can point to like whole swaths uh, of, of cinema that might be, um influenced by him i you know i think there are a lot of there's a ton of french filmmakers who are fans of him i mean just the most recent i mean in this case french cambodian um you know speaking to the director of return to soul um david cho you know he you know i think he brought up wiseman unprompted in terms of editing and um i was asking a little more and, and i said oh yeah and i think wiseman even directs plays and he says i know i just saw one you know <laughs> so like these you know the super fans uh, are, are rife there i think yeah. you know i've read that um a lot of the kind of chinese independent documentary mm-hmm. you know 10 15 years ago is more starting was you yeah, know like there the are degenerate films exactly yeah, yeah. That, that you know, there was arguments that there's some one trip he went there went you know where uh was was highly influential um i mean i don't know i'd like to think it's more influenced but i mean it's easier for me to point to those rather than you know a particular um a particular movie or particular filmmaker but yeah it, i think this is significant that reminds me because um alice diop was talking about how public housing mm-hmm. was a big text for her mm-hmm. for saint omer but um but i'm glad you were talking about the editing because i was just watching happy hour the 2015 film last week and and there's a scene where they're in like sort of this group therapy like sensory thing um that lasts a while and um once it ended i was like wait that was that was 
a Wiseman scene. Like <laughs> the way he builds to this scene and then the way that it just like totally breathes and it's like, you know, it's kind of like a meeting scene or this, or like one of the dance rehearsal scenes uh, where this thing is going on and you get to see all of it. And uh, the way that he edits out uh, like building to street is just like, that. that's that's exactly what I just watched was, was a Wiseman scene. It was, it was great. Yeah. So it's not always like in that, uh, you know, traditional like nonfiction uh, influence. Sure. No, definitely. Yeah. I, th- I think too, like I just, I, I interviewed on the Oakland based documentarian, Pete Nix a while back when his mm-hmm. film, the force came out who, you know, we've talked about someone who's, who's often in Weissman is invoked when discussing his films. And he would say they w- would watch the corollary Weissman films before they started shooting, but it didn't really seem like they were necessarily like carrying over his approach uh, towards necessarily like editing or structure in so much as they're just kind of say like, you know, what did he do? And like, how, how can we maybe do something different and more contemporary, you know? And I think, I think that's often when, when people are saying like the influence of Weissman about contemporary cinema, it's largely about just this institutional idea and less so about like the formal aspects of, of his techniques, which, you know, I think, I think, by and large, like just in general are, are overlooked. Um, you know, I think we, we all, we always get pretty deep into like just the, the beauty of his craft here. But, but I think when, when people say Weissman S, they're not talking about, you know, these immaculately, immaculately structured sequences and these like brilliant, um, sort of revelations as scenes accumulate, but they're, they're just talking about, Oh, they're, you know, looking at a school or, you know, they're, they're looking over here. Over force, there. Yeah. 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 Which seems like a big influence. I mean, an important influence to have as well, just giving people in a way permission to regard those things as, as subjects. Uh, you know, they might just seem vast or oh, sure. it might seem like, Oh, I have to find a way, find a way in to covering this particular school or this particular uh, place um, and you know being able to point to his movies and look to his movies as, as ways of course not everyone you know is is quite able to take three four hours uh, to do so and, yeah. and certainly in a, in a festival context um, yeah it's 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 hard to find uh, people who are doing quite that sort of you know you know slice latitudinal longitudinal slice of a place um, so, so you've, you've been able to, uh, interview him, um, on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how did those go for you? And were, did you like <laughs> approach them as like, you know, this person who really loves his work, like a, as, as a large admirer, or was that still sort of like budding at the time? Um, I think, uh, I mean, he's uh he's he's i've always enjoyed the interviews with him i mean they're definitely ones where i have to keep on my toes a little bit more because he's very Mm -hmm. precise Uh, and i i sometimes recall that he was a lawyer by training (laughs) when i'm talking to him because you know he might answer a question quite literally uh if he doesn't think that there is quite enough to go on there or if he objects to the premise um i mean honestly that's a posture that is just a kind of filmmaker sometimes i I mean honestly like spike lee is a little bit like frederick weissman in interviews Mm -hmm. in my experience in my my personal experience Mm -hmm. um 
But I think when I first interviewed him, uh, it was a little intimidating. I think I guess I was a, a fan, and I I think I said something like, "Is this Fred Wiseman?" He said, "Frederick," and I was like, "Ooh, <laughs> ooh. All right, okay." I, I think I had to earn, you know, I had to work yeah. my way after a couple interviews uh, to, to say that. Um, and I, I think it was that same interview though where he was while I was talking to him. I like it sounded like you're outdoors. Like what? What? And he says, "Oh yeah, I'm hiking." <laughs> I said, oh, uh, where, 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 where are you? And I think he, I forget, but he was just like, I think he said like he was in the, in like the Alps or something. Like, and I said, well, I don't want to distract you. You know, like, like yeah. just my luck would be like, I'm on the phone with Frederick Wiseman who's yeah. in the middle of the snow and somehow gets lost while I'm talking. To him. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, he, he, you know, he was, I think each time I've talked with him, there's been a, greater level of of trust and just more of a flow um and and yeah certainly by now i mean interviewing him for a couple uh you know was was just a real a real pleasure and he was just pretty open about analyzing his his own movies which wasn't my experience uh you know initially i noticed in some of the the interviews with a couple especially like when when the interviewer starts talking about the source material like when you when you kind of stop talking about Wiseman's like craft mm-hmm. like he he gets really into like yeah. <laughs> talk especially literature like he really likes to talk about literature just in general oh, sure. and and it can easily like be a, a divergence from the actual like subject at hand yeah no that actually was one one whole interview I did that I pitched and and I and a now I think no, uh, no longer existent um, website took it uh, and the interview was about his literary interests oh, and wow. influences uh, i think it might still be online so i was i mean i think i started by asking about uh pirandello um i think uh, essays by pirandello that at some in some early interview i found he said were influential on him and he still <laughs> just picked up that conversation as if the interview had you know <laughs> that that interview hadn't happened 40 years earlier um huh. and you know as you know there are all these like little literary references that he leaves in, in films, you know, whether it's like quoting Melville and Belfast, Maine, um, <laughs> or in near death, I think someone mentions like the treasure Island, the, the black spot or something like that. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, there's stuff like that kind of dotted throughout. And then, you know, you have whole movies that are just, you know, feasts of, of uh, visual as well as literary references with the uh, uh, ex libris and, um, National Gallery, um, not to mention all the different, you know, performative works that he works through with uh, with ballet and all the rest. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I should dig that up. I, I hope that's still classic example of, you know, you should save any work you right. have <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, for a website. But yeah, absolutely. He was he was very game to talk about about literature. And I think just in terms of what he said, one big thing was structure. Uh, he said mm-hmm. that these essays by this playwright really were really helpful for him in terms of thinking about structure. Yeah, what, one of the things we we came across on for this app was um, an interview from 1990 uh, that was published by the IDA um, uh, with uh, John Gianvito, the filmmaker who mm-hmm. uh, most recently did her Socialist Smile, yeah, um, and and he was he was talking about that. He he was said the novel is the model for me. Um, I'm interested in the exploration in film terms of the relationship between situation and character, and I try through indirect statement and obliqueness, uh, which is not the same thing as being obscure, to create a film that has some resonance. So I mean, 
Um, you know, he, he, we talk a lot about Weissman gesturing, you know, I think, I think that's like one of the keys. It's, it's kind of the, the, uh, the nod or the, uh, sort of subtle eye look and less so the, the, like, here it is presentation, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and openness of meaning that, you know, isn't just like meaninglessly amb- amb- ambiguous, you know, it's, it's not the kind of peekaboo uh, ambiguity of, of like, you know, um, you know, there are many frustrating films you watch where it's like, do you really know what you think might you be, you might be saying here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, in his case, it's, it's very kind of strategically open. Um, and actually just mentioning literature again, I remember I asked him at the time what he was reading uh, and he was reading a book by J.M. Coetzee, um, mm. the South African uh, author, uh, a novelist, uh, and it turns out he really loves that novelist. And having, I think oh, wow. at the time I had read a couple of books by him, um, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, uh, sort of uncannily so, some of the sort of deadpan affect of, of a Coetzee novel. Yeah. Uh, uh, it really rings true, rings. Yeah. Yeah, just some that that's interesting that you say that cuz um it didn't strike me at first as similar but like there is such like brutal uh imagery sometimes that just looked at head on a uh, very similar way that that Wiseman does uh that I mean he does it in near death um uh, just his treatment of death um in general but a lot of the treatment of animals throughout his his work is similar to treatment of animals in Coetzee's work very true well. yeah I hadn't mm-hmm. even thought about that yeah I, I mean what was it the um the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't remember. There's a title <laughs> one where something awful happens with dog or something. I found it. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so you've said near death is is one of your favorites, and it, obviously, if it made your your ballad, it, it's a big <laughs> thing for you. Did you see it during that that um, <clears throat> batch of thirty thirty five films that you watched? Uh, yeah. Was that the first time? And and like, yeah, I guess what was your first impression of it? Yeah, I did. I did watch it. And I don't remember if I was going chronologically or not. Um, I think I probably wasn't because the films kind of grouped themselves a little, but I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Um, it was the first time I saw it. Uh, and it, it was it was a profound experience. I mean, uh, it's tremendously moving. And I do have to say that, you know, Personally, you know, I experienced something like what mm. happens in the movie only after I saw it that time. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, you know, having had that, having lived through something like that, uh, of course, the movie is even more, you know, you know, more affecting because you start recognizing things uh, very, very precisely and the sort of thinking <laughs> that goes on. Um, but even at the time, that's part of what, the movie gives you access to in an incredible way. And, you know, death is, <laughs> I suppose it goes to that saying is one of the like central, well, it's an interesting subject in cinema because it's at once one of the, like the central subjects. And, you know, most of our canonical art house cinema is, you know, based is centered on it. Um, but at the same time, it's also something that can be treated so um, routinely. Um, and mm-hmm. it's also, you know, at the center of so much of the entertainment value of cinema mm-hmm. <laughs> that people are, you know, killed in adventures and things. And I'm not, I don't mean, I'm not judging that, but it's just amazing that that spectrum uh, of, of gradations of, of, of right. um, 
seriousness or, or profundity can, can occur. So I, there's nothing like, I hadn't seen anything like near death uh, at, at that time. Even its sense of time, which is just almost hallucinatory mm. after a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a couple things there. Um, uh, first is, is uh, about, you know, your own experience uh, dealing with something after watching this. I, I had the opposite experience. I've dealt with something uh, earlier in life before coming to this. But, but Weissman actually said near death should be regarded as a rehearsal. Like, did, did you feel yourself drawing from the experience of, of engaging with that film when you were, you know, doing your own real life version of it? No, it's a very fair question. I mean, I have to say in the moment, I was not thinking about anything outside of the room <laughs> yeah. I was in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, but I think that that might be true uh, for, 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 for many people. Um, and, and I would hope it is. And that actually kind of raises something that occurred to me while watching this film and occurred to me while watching, you know, all of those films at that time that I did, which is whether Wiseman, how much Wiseman thinks of his movies as as modeling behavior. Um, mm. I mean, in, in the most direct sense, he would say absolutely the opposite. You know, he's he's observing. But I you, that was the great paradox of watching his movies is that obviously he considers himself as recording what's going on and analyzing and structuring it. But uh, I couldn't help but feel the real embrace of public trust or like, you know, and public communal endeavors mm. um, and kind of sort of a fundamentally, I don't know if I'd say optimistic, but humanistic view of, of human relations. Uh, I mean, in near death, you know, there is just a tremendous faith placed in here in in conversations uh, and you know this, this this sense of kind of absurdist humor that crops up in his other movies is not as prominent here mm -hmm. and that's somehow sort of telling to me that he really wants to give space uh to the and and really like recognize the full and deep legitimacy of these kind of conversations um and watching it or re-watching it now yeah i really uh I, I did feel that in some ways it's like this is how it could be. And mm. especially now you feel that, I mean, inevitably I think of, you know, the pandemic, uh, which I think is this huge, just like gaping wound of trauma of our past three years For sure. that where grief was never really allowed to happen either early on so much or even later. Um, I mean, denial actually being like a political position is kind of incredible. Um, and so that was another aspect of watching this movie now uh, and how it struck me sort of differently in that sense. So, um, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's interesting because I think it, it circles back to something you, you brought up just before this about like how cinematic representations of death, you know, are what, what kinds of those we're accustomed to seeing and how, you know, the presentation, like the honest depiction of death, the non-cessationalized, you know, uh, arguably like non-narrative um, treatment in this film can be seen as like a transgression, a transgression mm -hmm. against the viewer, a transgression against like uh, societal taboos, against like just not discussing death, you know, and and I think um, I think I read one of the things is that the film was originally conceived by one of the directors of Beth Israel because he found that people got to this point in treatment, family members and patients alike, 
and you know didn't have the foggiest idea of how to navigate it or or what to expect so he he wanted to like demystify you know what goes on in these walls um but you know in doing so it's this it's this like yeah like looming um just sort of we're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be seeing this. We're not supposed to talk about this. Like, let's be, let's put this aside. Yeah, we know we're going to die, right? But, like, I'm not dying right now. So, like, uh, forget about it, you know? But, but, uh, this, this difference, I guess, between, um, especially like Hollywood narrative cinematic representations of death and, and documentary representations of death and, like, um, just the, the inherent disconnect in, because those Hollywood representations are really largely the only engagement we have outside of just kind of like news, uh, in our like day-to-day lives about people dying. Right. Like that's like, like, you know, I'm someone who watches like martial arts movies, you know, and, and someone, you know, getting their head kicked off or something is like, Whoa, you know, cool. But, but, you know, in a doc, um, it's, it's completely the opposite. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, as as somebody you know also very engaged in in cinema just like do you do you notice anything you know and and i should say too death in documentary is like its own rich subgenre there are so many films we could talk about there um but do you think there's anything unique both within this nonfiction treatment and within weissman's own particular uh treatment of of the topic in this film well i mean i think generally i think weissman is pretty matter of fact and has a sort of matter of fact to the point of absurdist view of, of death and our, our place on earth. Uh, and I think that does crop up a little in near death where, you know, we have these long, you know, deeply felt, uh, extensive, uh, discussions and same as ever though, he's still got a guy cleaning up, taking out the trash, you know, someone else spritzing some Windex here. Um, the grim, and, the grim sweeper. Yes, the grim sweeper. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and that's still happening. And I, but I think it's you know it's more pronounced in some of his other films that uh, you know I mean to the point where people I think or I think that's something that maybe has evolved in his career. I mean I don't really want to hmm. presume to say that, and I don't think it comes from some realization of his, but maybe just approaching things a little differently. Um, yeah, you look at Titicut Follies, obviously, uh, you know where he himself says that. I was too didactic there and with how I'm showing mistreatment or connecting, you know, death, uh, and, um, to metaphor, um, or, but, or hospital, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's pretty blunt, you know? I mean, one thing I remember when I was watching all those movies is that I was struck that in like the Wiseman movies where there's like, were like zoo or primate, um, there's something they had in common with the, like, you know, medical care movies is that there was always the sound of a body hitting a ground or metal <laughs> at some point, yeah. you know, racetrack um, too. Yeah. Yeah. Race. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I just, I, that struck me as like a really just concrete acknowledgement. It's like, you're here, boom. <laughs> and that's, you know, and that's for me, that's also more than the, you know, kind of macho, you know, you know, whatever life sucks and then you die or like you're gone in a blink of an eye, you know? And, and yeah, yeah. Th- th- there's also the maintenance of the body. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I think of zoo, the rhinoceros, uh, incinerator stuff was, which is just like 
incredible yeah. and the stuff like uh in your death where you know you are seeing the, like the physical labor of of taking care of of these bodies after they die um which oh, is yeah. important no i mean that's huge i mean that's something that i i don't know on some level i must have repressed because watching it again i was kind of shocked and you you know going from uh you know um i'm forgetting the name but someone dies their body is you know wrapped wrapped up shrouded the bag of belongings is placed on top. Yeah. It's rolled to, to the morgue. Next sequence, autopsy in front of an audience of, you know, 50 students um, where yeah. they they have a tray Pack of times. organs, yeah. you know, and, and that's 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 it, you know. And, and also, yeah. like, the complete, your complete uh, disappearance of your personhood and privacy. Like, they're talking about how this particular person is like, he didn't, he absence of left testy. And it's like, you know, it's, it's like you're, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. you're you're that it's just sort of you're dead and you're just a pile of objects or lack thereof on on a tray. It's, right. Yeah. Like li- literally, like poked and prodded. Like um, the most remarkable evidence um, was found in the thoracic cavity. He had um, 100 cc's of um, pl- serosanguineous pleural effusions um, bilaterally, and both of his lungs weighed approximately 800 grams. Which is, hmm. You really should feel the uh, put on gloves. There, I think the important virtually thing no air spaces in here. Yeah, looking at them, <laughs> it isn't evident how fibrotic they are, but to touch, it's a very woody consistency. You know, yeah, like, no, and the language yeah. changes too. Like there, yeah. it, it rushes. It's just this rush of, of like you know technical uh, jargon, um, and you feel immediately distance from, from the humanity. Mm, and then, you right. know, when you come back to that, you realize how important the language and conversation is in this, in this, in this movie. And people not even necessarily, it's not even euphemisms. I mean, people, it just feels like spade work. Like you're, you're just doing this hard work and it's like a game of telephone almost. Um, and that's something else I just appreciate. And you asked me like what struck me, you know, when I first saw, and that was also another thing. I don't think I'd seen a movie that had like dialogue like this to this extent, it's, it's really quite, you know, unique. And, and to, to your point about how the language changes in the first like 30 minutes, there's a scene where we see somebody pass away and the nurses are there. And as soon as they're gone, they're like, okay, she's dead. 10 Like it's one of the like only times you like, hear them actually say like dead is like right after somebody's well dead. that's and that's too that that scene the flatline scene right is that what you're talking about it's like you it barely registers until you get that dialogue that that someone right. just died on camera that you just watched someone like breathe their last breath you know i mean we all know from just like tv and film what that flatline you know means but we're like well wait this seems kind of like uneventful like did did they just die and they're like yeah he died and you're like and then it's only in retrospect that you're like wow i just watched someone die yeah it's it's kind of terrifying to be honest that scene because it's yeah how do you recognize that moment when life leaves a body um and you know you're looking at this squiggle on an ekg and it's not like the usual dramatic beeps or, or, you know, and, and it's not this dramatic, right. Yeah. yeah, Progression of things. It's, it's not, it's not immediately clear. Um, and yet it is, yeah, totally undeniable. Um, and then, yeah, someone pronounced his death and that definitely happens. Yeah. (laughs) But, and well, the film is all about that gray space between, Mm. uh, death and, and being alive, right. Near death. (laughs) Um, but like, you know, that's, that's the whole quandary, I guess, or a lot of it is, is, uh, 
What, what does that one doctor say? Like, see, the other thing with is the way the way a lot of chemotherapy is presented to people. Too, I mean, take a guy with oat cell carcinoma in the lung. You know, you can you can say to that person, well, yeah, you know, we can double your life expectancy. We can take you from living three months with no chemotherapy to living six months with chemotherapy. But for that six months, you won't be able to swallow anything because your mouth will be raw. You know, you'll be constantly in the hospital and infected. And um, but you'll live twice as long. But that's not the way it's presented. I mean, you know, you don't present it to a person. Well, you know, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have you live twice as long. But there's a morbidity associated with living twice as long. Or you can live short and sweet and. Yeah. No. And, and I mean, that's another thing that I think is just a miracle about this movie is that how he can show all these conversations and circling um, dialogue uh, and people being frank up to a point as much as they can and then being frank among their colleagues. And yet I, I personally don't watch this and think, oh, these doctors are like kind of crass, you know, um, or, no, no, you know, yeah. and because like <laughs> it's almost, it's, it's hard to imagine that in, in other documentaries, like, I don't, I don't know. There's always some little <laughs> sliver of, of, of cynicism that creeps in or we just want to be, we, I, it's not that we want to think that doctors are callous, but we want to be, you know, I don't know. We want to think that somehow, you know, that, that mm. somehow it, it, that there's this, so that's what I mean, that there's this weird strain of faith in the movie. I don't mean like religious faith, but just, I mean, trust mm-hmm. in, in what people are, are doing. And, and the fact that he's able to establish that is, is really uh, remarkable to me. Yeah, that's that's really well said. The like um, those scenes, those kind of doing the rounds, doctors and nurses speaking to each other in the hallway scenes, like they're they're so valuable uh, in demonstrating Weissman's like characteristic multiple perspective uh, approach in his films. You know, like like we had just kind of went from feeling you know identifying with <clears throat> a patient's wife, you know, grasping to understand the circumstances around her husband and now we're we're speak, we're identifying with these doctors speaking very matter-of-factly about you know the prognosis and what they think is going to happen anyway he's um he's looking good um so there's this is it oh yeah i mean we're not there he's he's, he's dnr i mean he you know he sort of understands what the situation is <laughs> why don't you just come right out and say it no i just you know. yeah, he's, he we've talked to him about it and bill's talked to him and he you know he's pretty i think he understands that uh, you know that um everything has been done i think the goal is to see if we can get him out of here and get maybe get him home for i mean he's really he's, he's been home for what did he get two weeks I guess he didn't even get two weeks. Two weeks out of the hospital, in a rehab hospital. He's never been home since he had the operation. So if you could get him home at all, it would be victory. Is he, uh, he's on procaine. Can we use IV antiarrhythmics or how DNR is DNR? Well, yeah. No, I mean, anything pharmacologically you want to play around is fine. And, and you know, there's an element, I think, and maybe we, we could get into a still small voice, which you just saw too uh, here, but, like, you the humanism of it as a viewer relating to these doctors is like, yeah, like you, you must have to steal yourself some doing this work, right? Like, like it's just a, a, 
a matter of survival to to create a bit of distance otherwise you're going to destroy yourself and and you know arguably that's that's what happens to the the main protagonist in the still small voice right is she just like too feeling she gives too much of herself to each of these patients in each of these situations and and it, it it's her downfall ultimately in the program um but but i mean uh, and i wonder if you guys picked this up too but it, it it sounded like on the doctor's end at least this is like a bit of a tour of duty kind of thing i know one thing i'm glad i only do this one month a year yeah um and and part of i think what helps humanize them one of the scenes that really struck me is um the scene between him and one of the nurses, I believe she's a nurse, um, and she's talking about her boyfriend and like her home life and how she like deals with work. I mean, he, he, that he's always on the side of he's letting old, uh, letting him live. Well, if it's not, if it's I mean, doing everything, he is he ageist. He, he, I, I think he also is ageist. It's hard she, not but to you be see, when but you're but young. You see, but you see, but look. He's a lay person. But, yeah. but that's the point. Just He's like you, you would, you, I mean, you would not, I mean, you're supposed to know your business, okay? You, you, what does he do? He's a lawyer? He's a lawyer. He's a lawyer, right? I mean, if, if it came to a um, uh, tort case or whatever, and he said, do, you know, Rachel, we have to do this, this, and this, you know, you would ask him some questions about it, but he's the professional, not you. And I would Whereas your opinion. job is to interpret all of this stuff. No, but you see, if I came home person. and I said, I have this uh, clinic patient, she has this hopeless tumor, there's like one in a million, she's 35 years old, she just had a baby, you know, and uh, I can't see putting her through the torture of chemo. His response would be, that's not your choice, that's her choice. Well, I think that that's partly right, you know, in but the sense would, of saying, in the sense of, that, the sense of saying that, that, you know, she should the, choose the chemo. Well, that she should have the choice of understanding, you know, making an informed decision about. I mean, this is this gets into not the question of sort of DNR, but you know, sort of what is, what is the physician's responsibility? What you know, what is informed, an informed choice, and what is, you know, I, I mean, the pr the problem is, is that, you know, it's it's always informed in quotes. You know, it's. Yes, you know, we can cure your leukemia, but, you know, you're going to have to spend the next year in the hospital and, you know, people are going to stick needles in your body every day and, uh, um, you know, horrible things and you'll be tortured in ways you never <laughs> dreamed could possibly occur, you know, but you will live. You know, some people would say, well, you know, that's the definition of purgatory. You know, and some people would say, no, I take my chances, I'm going right to heaven. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. I mean, you know, the question is, what is a, you know, what is informed? Well, that's the thing. It, it, it just strikes me how, as this layperson who's sort of, you know, lived with me through medical school and all, he still always comes down on the side of, of the hope and the chance, even though, you know, he's heard quite graphic descriptions of the chi-chi that goes on. And so then when I, when I say, he says it should be her choice, and I say yes, but, you know, who's giving her the information to make that choice right. it's me and i cannot help it, my bias must come through i'm human i'm not a computer and i, I you, well right i mean i guess i think it so is important as, as long as you as long as you realize that you know that i mean i think this as much as doctors try to be objective it's impossible. You know, nobody's it's totally to objective. I mean, and you know, we slant the news and sort of say, look, you know, I think you should do this and this and this. 
Well, you know, I mean, I, I am quite nihilistic about, you know, what, you know, what actually happens. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, from a, from a personal point of view, I mean, I think, you know, you do real well with the infectious diseases and, you know, if you can exercise, keep your weight down, don't smoke, you know, then you've done everything, then you've done pretty much what you can, but, you know, a lot of this stuff that goes on is just not really relevant to making quality of life or length of life all that much better. If you to but that's part of me. Give I'm people quality of life, you could like, be a furniture salesman or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easy to fix things that are fixable. It reminded me of like The Office, like the sitcom where you get to like hear people in at work talking about their relationships, but it really does humanize them the way that they are taking each other seriously. Um, The same way that they talk about patients. um, uh, It's just a small scene that that he included that, you know, he couldn't have included, and I'm sure he could have included many more, but really resonates over um, the rest of their uh, camaraderie and respect for each other. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, that's, that's, another type of film it is is a workplace film uh you know and that's with without without being kind of i mean diminished is the wrong word but without being kind of there's a way in which when you're showing a lot of the minutia of of work of the workplace it can kind of sap the energy out of the main Mm -hmm. endeavor and i think maybe one habit of you know whatever to blithely generalize you know since near death i think that's been interesting to a lot of people and i think it's interesting up to a point but then you watch near death where it's like this concentrated dose of what they do and you're like this is actually very very interesting you know yeah to actually see these these conversations which you know i i have to say are really repetitive um mm-hmm. and i don't mean there's mm-hmm. a criticism but it's that's another way where the movie is like you know it's it's not that it's like avant-garde but there's there's something amazing mm-hmm. about just seeing yeah these conversations that are just iterative, you know, like they're doing slight variations on things. Um, they're, it's like they're, they're, they're constantly revising and responding to what each other is saying. And you don't get to see these gradations, even within a Wiseman movie sometimes. Like there are scenes here that might've been more compressed uh, elsewhere. Um, and so that's also, oh, for sure. you know, it's pretty important to it. I mean, the, the last segment was Charlie Spraza, that's like its own movie. That's a feature length film yeah. all into itself, you know, within this, this six hour behemoth. And I mean, like Mamber and, and some others noted, you know, there, there's this Sisyphean quality mm. to the film, you know, as, as in, in between each sequence, we'd briefly go back outside to the streets of Boston, you know, uh, before returning to do the same thing over again, the same conversations dealing with the same life or death decisions and, and the way they interrogate and give attention to, to each patient, you know, I think, I think is, is we need that repetition to see it because, because um, they don't say like, yeah, we've seen this a million, you know, this is, the same one we just watched you know we don't need to talk about it and it's really interesting you know this coming right after missile too because this is just the kind of self-interrogation that is just not a part of that institution at all just totally disallowed would not be uh, functional Mm -hmm. but here it they're they're constantly investigating themselves and revisiting their rationale for things and and trying to uh, create better practices and and i think that's like just like a very like 
you know, you, you, you could go back and forth about whether this is a documentary about like a well-functioning institution, but, but that part of it at least seems to be like, like that's what you, you would want to be seeing. Yeah. I think that's such an interesting point that like the degree of, uh, reflection that's going on in the particular institution he's looking at in each film um, and and how that really does vary and and maybe that has increased maybe he's given more room to that as, as he's gone along um i don't know necessarily if that holds holds water um but it also makes me think that another distinct thing about near death is that it's sequential uh which is mm. pretty pretty different from uh, his other mm-hmm. movies where he's circling many different um threads um and many different scenes but in this case as you said like we have like four cases that and each could be almost like a, a movie in itself and i guess domestic violence too is maybe another sequential one um i mean welfare is i mean jumps around a lot but is fairly sequential and um but maneuver maybe new juvenile court i sort of remember is that way um, but otherwise, generally, he's, there's, you know, there's more interlacing um, that's right. going on. And I think that's also a choice here where it's like each person deserves their own continuous consideration, you know, and that's and, yeah, big choice. And it's I think it's also important. Uh, a lot of what we're talking about time, how he structures time. And um, Barry Keith Grant talked about this in his book about how time is, you know, he's, he's doing these interstitials with the sun setting and, and outside and stuff. So you, you know, when a day is over and when it starts again and how important that is to coping with death for families and making difficult decisions as days go on is very important. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> Brittany Gravely, who we had on previously, uh, from the, from the Harvard film archive, she, she talked about how, and, and Nick, you said it, it was hallucinatory. She said that like time just sort of like loses loses meaning um, while you're watching so differently, I think, than, than the time passing diegetically. But um, that's just such an incredibly difficult thing to do in a film when, you know, you're, we're talking about jargon and doctors and patients to, to just be so uh, enveloped um, in something like this. Yeah, which, well, which I have to say is maybe it's part, partly hallucinatory, but also perhaps true to experience in a hospital, <laughs> which mm. is there are very these self-contained yeah. places um, and, you know, very concrete physical things are happening and being treated. But it also just feels like you're, you know, you're completely out of society. You're out of every context you usually know uh, and you're adult or not or people around you are. So it is it is sort of true that. But I mean, it's also a point where. I mean, this is a documentary, but this is also like a dramatic, um, I don't want to say artifice, but a dramatic um, construction to a certain extent, mm-hmm. you know, um, these, these, these conversations that are, that are occurring. Um, and it, it, it again, I, have, I don't think it's idealized, but there is a, there is a kind of degree to which it's, it's, I mean, they're almost priestly. They're like these priestly considerations, you know, it's like this hospital is, you're not in heaven. It's not like, like purgatory <laughs> but it's some antechamber where people are deliberating 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 with you to bring you to the point or not even bring you to show you the way so that you can go yourself to the point of doing what you have to do um and that's yeah that's also amazing maybe the best example of that is the bernice and dr curlin debate of, um that like he edits so beautifully yeah. and Dave, davy shoots so beautifully um <laughs> just like deliberating and deliberating um 
into this very complex drama. Yeah, and and again, it's it seems so mundane, and there are points where I'm watching it and I get frustrated with it, but then I'm just like, that's that's the process. He's showing you the process, like he does in other movies. Um, but in this case, yeah, that's the, the process. They're so dedicated. I mean, someone says... Everything here is sort of built on Quaker concept of consensus, you know? It's what the patient wants, the house staff wants, the nurses want, the doctors want, and what the family wants. And every time you have difficulty, it's because one of those elements is out of sync. Yeah, the, the purgatory idea is an interesting one. It, it was brought up by one of the, the medical writers we found, um, Ekel Widjix, uh, who said the hospital does represent a purgatory because the prisoners, prisoners, <laughs> uh, the patients, <laughs> patients are imprisoned between life and death, right? They're in this like liminal space and they're not quite one thing and they're not quite the other. Um, and, and it does, I think, create this um you know i think the big thing about this film is it forces you to confront death it forces you to confront dying and and even to occupy the the space of a dying person right and um yeah not not a great place to be (laughs) um but you know i think it's something weissman is very conscious of invoking uh, imbuing the film to to invoke within the viewer because as you said this is it is this meticulous construction and and i think the the amount of raw footage here was m- more than any film previous I, I saw 80 hours which is about double what what we've been seeing uh on most of the films um so so even that six hour length is incredibly condensed and um as I noted elsewhere, that six hours that we're spending in this purgatory isn't even one shift for any of the people we're watching in the film who have to do this daily. Um, which, you know, when you just kind of take a step back on at your like emotional reaction to the film and, and think about that, you're like, how does anybody do it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, he's he's not going to give you the sense that there's necessarily an, a clean ending to any of these stories. I mean, and, unless I'm mistaken, one bewildering thing is that you catch a glimpse of Bernice later in the film after we've seen her sequence, I think, or at least her well, husband. Well, I mean, we don't, I don't want to jump ahead, but those those ending title cards are something we got to talk about just as being like insane in a Weissman film, right? To like give us that level of, of uh, closure, Closure, you know, like, like, and, and, and one of the cards mentions Bernice is the only one who, who was living at at the time that they were finishing the film. Um, But like, what, what did you guys make of that? Is that just him throwing us a bone because we spent so much time with these people that we, we have to learn because it, it, it's very uncharacteristic and it, it, I was kind of like, you know, whoa. Yeah, it is, it is, it is odd. But for me, it just falls in with the fact that this movie is somehow a little singular uh, in among his films mm-hmm. um, in, in just its sustained attention to, yeah, to death and, um, you know, and even even the way it's a series of these kind of case studies. Um, so, and for all I know, that he might have felt that he had a particular trust, you know, with with the hospital right. and with the people he'd spent time with. That that's what he felt he he would put it at the end. Um, so I don't that's know. the feeling I got. Um, I wanted to jump back quickly to uh, Arlen. I really liked what you you said about 
missile, how this is different from missile and thinking about uh, it as a community, which is something Wiseman said, he was really like touched with how this community works within this ICU. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Nick, you were kind of talking about um, other films, uh, whether they were later or before that and, and how, uh, uh, whether it's grown or not. But I, I was thinking a lot about a scene, which is, I think another community that is reflective um, tries to be whether they're successful or not is another story, but they, they try to reflect on what their community is and what it should be. Um, which, which reminded me of, of, uh, something tangential, which, um, uh, Barry Keith Grant, it was so good in his book to talk about how important touch is in this film mm -hmm. and how, mm -hmm. and, and coming right off of the deaf and blind series, um, and which is just all about touch and thinking about, uh, just, the sort of gestural component um, within here, whether it's, you know, doctors touching their patients and doctors touching family members or family members touching each other to console them or patients communicating uh, with doctors via touch. Um, and uh, which, which, you know, made me think of a scene again, you know, this sort of like prayer uh, aspect where they're all touching each other or um, uh, Arlen, after we saw a hospital recently um, in Chicago, we talked afterwards about this beautiful shot uh, towards the end with the stabbing victim and mm. the wife puts puts her hand on him and, and there's this close up of of hands. Um, so I don't know. It just made me kind of like uh, uh, look at 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 touch um, with more focus in um, Wiseman's project. But um, I wondered if there were other ways that you you guys thought that this kind of touched on other themes uh like within the the broader wiseman project well i mean one thing it's sort of related to touch and, and kind of how that broaches space you know uh, but it's the, the way space works in this film you know because you know for a filmmaker you have to think that it's it's a pretty static setup um you know especially since this isn't about you know, surgery or or, or you know, it's not about action. <laughs> uh, yeah, you yeah. Know. Patient's not going anywhere. Patient's not going anywhere. Um, and even in framing, and this kind of comes out at one point from one particular camera movement that I'm, I'm sure you remember. Uh, but when you're filming someone sitting at a bedside, the person, like your focus, their head is always like recessed into the frame, into mm -hmm. the background. So visually, whether you want to or not, your composition is pushing the patient the living person into the background. Um, and at one yeah. point I forget, I think it's one of the first, the first patient or second patient, um, you know, Davey. Um, I, I have to think that this is cause you probably talked about how Wiseman has like these hand gestures that he does or whatever mm -hmm. to get Davey mm -hmm. to, to zoom or do whatever, but he's, he's showing the usual frame of doctor and patient. Um, but then we zoom in on, and I think actually, I think it's Mr. Gavin. I think it's that guy. And we zoom mm -hmm. in on his face uh, just so we have that, you know, just so we're there with them. And it's almost to remind us that, you know, <laughs> we're with them. You know, when ultimately. when they're in the hall, the him, the doctor and the family are in the hallway and you see Gavin in the window through oh, the man. background, you know, Brutal. like, like, <laughs> just like, I mean, yeah, credit to Davey because like his ability in this film to just like create these compositions on the fly is is just it, like really something to behold. And I that think, one recalled recalled racetrack, like the shots with just like the people like sitting on their you know it's chair or suitcase with with nobody around them, just sort of despondent. Yeah, just great photography. Yeah, and yeah. I think I think in the editing, Fred, you know, we we get a bit more 
I remember Sean in the episode with the last episode with Mamber, like you were talking about this this um, style that Weissman and Davy have developed that's sort of distinct from like cinema verite style of like you know a lot of handheld camera stuff. But I think in this film, Weissman allows a bit more of that in to uh, further um, you know support these longer unbroken takes and conversations. You know, what he will include Davy kind of repositioning and taking the subject out of frame for a second and then, you know, moving back in without uh, a cut to some insert to kind of cover that movement mm-hmm. because I think, you know, maybe related to the title ending card thing we were talking about, but, like, the the duration and the unbrokenness of, like, all of these scenes is, is pretty key and critical to, to creating this experience of time that, that's very unique in this film. And, and sort of part and parcel of that is another pet theme of his that's here is education is like he's clearly interested in how people are educating mm-hmm. each other. You know, you, you get doctors teaching nurses and healthcare providers teaching patients and about machines and treatment and, of course, teaching family members about diagnoses or what the trajectory is and what the best treatment is. Um, just all of that time to be able to see how education works. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's, that's a huge part of the, the hospital context uh, and also just authority. Um, and which is especially interesting yeah. with doctors and nurses. Uh, and, you know, it's clear at some points that some doctors would rather be able to make decisions without some other doctors <laughs> there. And there's generational things. So you think about how the profession has changed from one generation to the next, like there's an older doctor who still, you know, seems to think of himself as this, you know, fatherly figure almost in this kindly fatherly figure but who ultimately is still kind of making the decisions um and then you have the more matter of fact kind of next generation is a bit blunter and then the nurses i mean i love when i mean i don't want to misspeak i i don't know if maybe it's a mix of nurses and doctors but when it's mm-hmm. all women around a table and they're just yeah oh my god having those discussions are real highlights of, of the film yeah same problem that we had with the Wong family and this person was brain dead He's uh, not brain dead. I know he is. I mean, legally the brain dead, the tube comes out and that's it. Well, that but... wasn't with the Wong family. No. The patient was but... legally brain dead by I, all criteria, by him. all the Harvard criteria. Right. And we kept the patient on a machine, basically right. kept the heart breathing for three days until the family could deal with it. And even after three days, they couldn't deal with it. But and when the tube did come out, they blamed me. I was the culprit. I oh. killed their mother. Is they said what... that to you. Not directly to me, but because I was the most visible person. And, you know, it's hard. It really is hard when, when people try to blame it on you because, you know, the inevitable happens. We right. have no control over the fact that their mother is brain dead. And I guess it's all in the way you look at death, right. whether you look at it legally that. or emotionally. Well, it's a very hard concept, I think, to understand brain dead. And I think that's... It is. That's where you get well, into the to the problem of, of providing you know too much information to families and well, I think like, you were like I said it's just a difficult just, concept. Say brain dead. What we right. should say is that your They're family dead. member has passed away and the only reason you see a heartbeat is because we're artificially keeping the body essentially a lot uh, going keeping the heartbeat going because of oxygen because the longer that we procrastinate the long in that particular instance the longer that we keep the person's heart beating, the more confused the family's going to become. If you tell the family on a Monday that 
your mother is brain dead, and three days later they're still, quote, alive in the bed as far as they're concerned, then obviously they have hope and they start to question, you know, whether it is in fact true that she is brain dead. The question you know? is, why do you... Just to talk about this and then to get back also to this situation, which you're going to have to live through this weekend. I mean, that's the other piece of this. And what does that feel like to live through this? But, I mean, why, why do we get into saying that anyway to families? I mean, that's really the issue. What, what, why, why do we do it? I think to protect them. I think to make it easier for them, I guess. It's kind of the... It's so to difficult... to make it easier for them or to make it easier for, for us? For maybe for us. It's difficult to say to someone... I mean, maybe it gets into how you really look at death and, you know... Uh, you is the person. I mean, you you're you're in there, turning the person from side to side. You're doing AM care, but yet the person is supposedly dead. I mean, it, well, it's I think also to get everyone in agreement that that is in fact the case. That someone's dead is another difficult thing. Um, just really frank, you know, agreeing, disagreeing, just from every angle on things. Um, so all of that is is really interesting. And then related to authority, you know, you probably have come across the quote where Wiseman's like. What I'm really interested in is uh, decisions, the point at where decisions are made, because that shows you ideology. Mm -hmm. um, and right. this this movie is about the decision, <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally. you know, um, but also in a way about how that's it's not a decision. It's it's really more about I don't know what you would say. Yeah. Letting go or, or being ready or accepting. Yeah, or trying to teach the best decision. The like Sean, you bring up education. There's this like idea of education or manipulation, right? Like how mm -hmm. how much do you reveal to patients' families? You know what what information do you offer, knowing that whatever you say could heavily influence, uh, you know, the decision that's being made? Because you're, I mean, you're right, Nick. Like they they are the authority. I mean. You, as a as a family member you don't know what the hell's happening to your loved one you don't know you know what options there really are other than what the doctors tell you there are um so like back to that idea of faith you know like like there is total faith in the doctors and even when under the surface like with um mrs sparazza you know she she keeps asking the same questions like kind of feeling like maybe something was missed that the doctors didn't do something that they could have done you know but then like kind of getting the same answers well once one organ goes another and another you know but like like she she still maintains this faith but there's there's something within her that that is not grasping like just the logical um facts of of the situation yeah which is totally acceptable because it's like she has yeah. to arrive at herself and and watching that procession, you know, and, and it's interesting kind of reading between the lines where people are at <laughs> with that decision. You know, I think um, Mrs. Gavin is a really interesting case because it seems like she's sort of a bit further along and accepting where her husband is than, than, than the husband is. Um, but she doesn't want to say it outright. But you can tell she maybe wants to nudge him toward understanding how his, his, yeah. his situation is. Um, and yeah, and then with the doctors, there's a whole thing that does recur and that shows a little bit i think you know the doctors feel like they are the medical authorities you know they're like we're yeah, asking people who totally. don't know anything uh, about the science or the medicine to make decisions um and from a institutional standpoint you can kind of uh understand that perspective it's like you know right. how yeah. how are we expecting them to make the best decisions but there is also a ever slight like tint of 
I don't want to say arrogance, but you know, frustration. Yeah. But there's, I mean, I have a sensitivity to that as well because it's like the medical knowledge is not the only thing there, you know, necessarily. I think there's, there's a recognition that it's an impossible situation to put the families in because they're just ill-equipped to, to make, the decisions based on you know their existing knowledge but it's it's also necessary to do that because it's it's their family member who's who's going to live or die um yeah. and and i think you know that's you you were mentioning ideology you know that as far as like you know key weissman themes you know we have the the ideology versus practice dialectic here of like you know when when are we involving the family and how much when yeah. are we trying to save a life uh or versus merely prolong a life versus like end suffering and you know like like that's uh really seems to be at least through the examples Weissman shows us in the film it seems to be more about suffering management pain management getting them on morphine drips making their last days as comfortable as possible you know knowing that these like massive uh lung failures and diseases are just you know it's just a matter of time yeah and and this is where it strikes me that the movie is not is not focused on the futility of that it's focused on the emotional work that needs to occur and how like the ideology is flexible here like um because it has to be collaborative with, mm-hmm. with the, the family members, which is interesting in itself. Like, how do you practice this ideology if you don't know exactly what it is kind of thing? Yeah. And, yeah. and also how it's, even they don't know, right? Like, like right. you know, it could turn right. out any other way. And they say that too, you know, we've had situations where we thought it was going to go one way and it went totally the other way. And like, you know, back to the title cards, um, uh, Bernice, like her her situation like she she seemed pretty rough like she couldn't talk she like you know was making yeah. very faint hand gestures and you know it's like it seemed like yeah you know she doesn't look great for her but but to learn that that she you know made it out of mickey and, and right you it, know, it like, really changes yeah it really changes your idea of uh you know the whole drama and whose side you come on because like I, I mean you kind of feel like the older guy it might be a little bit manipulative or selfish or something or like has well, she, he of... was her primary physician i think right so there's so a like, history yeah, there like mm-hmm. and yeah. it's not exactly very um like objective yeah uh is maybe a better way to put it and uh the other people s- seem so practical about it and then yeah. it goes on to be something that that quote unquote worked uh what what he was suggesting but and like with with Speraza too the the last guy we see like it's it's almost a miracle when he's leaving the room he's going home right like like you feel this sense of triumph like wow like charlie did it you know he's getting out of there just for the title card at the end to pull the rug out from under you yeah 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 And, and that's yeah that's where yeah the movie is completely resisting you know everything we're, we're we're taught through various hospital dramas over you know over, over the years um but it's funny you know thinking back again about where this appears coming after the the you know deaf and blind films you know you know thinking about how you having to read people's feelings and emotions you know that they're, they're in the position of not being able to communicate in the same language that other yeah. people are being able to communicate um and it's like that's what's that's what's so fascinating about this movie is that it's obviously about the patients but the patients can't 
always express themselves. And that's such a, it's yeah. such a, it's such a maddening, fascinating way. It's like they're the whole, like the, for the, each patient, like this is their soliloquy, but they're not always able to talk. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like crazy. Yeah. And, and in between, I mean, that, that's, that's great. That's uh, very sharp. And then in between, you know, deaf and blind and this, we have missile, which is just like, you know, it's about communication of a, of a different sort. It's, we know the answer and we're going to tell you what that answer is. Sure. I mean, and then there you have, it's about mass death, you know, as, as, as an abstraction, totally. you know, I mean, what is, yeah. yeah, whatever they say things in the, in those lectures and in, in that, in that movie, <laughs> yeah. it's, just, it's insane. And, and I, yeah, it's, there's such a wonderful pairing because you have like the, the complete, like, you know, destructive and very unhealthy abstraction of death there versus yeah, here's yeah, how we actually sure. have to deal with it. Well, there is, there is yeah. that irony, right? That like the hospital, the place of healing and, and, you know, the saving of lives is the place where so much death is seen and Vandenberg air force base, you know, the place armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons, uh, no death ever arose from that. You know, there's the potential for it certainly, but, but in practice, you know, no, no one ever died. Yeah. Now <laughs> it just made me think, isn't there something in missile about how like some people will fail the course or something? And I just, I, yeah, I yeah. Just, like, <laughs> but, uh, but even if they do, they, they kind of give them a exactly. Anyway. Yeah. They're right. still going to have <laughs> access to the button. I, I did want to say real quick, uh, the, um, the scene that you mentioned with the nurses where they're talking about brain dead is just so yeah. good. Like it's one of those scenes you don't want to end. Uh, you just wish it would go on for like an hour. It's, 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 yeah. yeah the yeah. type of thing that he really perfects um in his late uh era yeah those, those types of scenes no and also it it it's funny watching Wiseman can kind of spoil you for dramas for a certain extent it's like where are you gonna totally. find a you know <laughs> l- you know loose flowing you know intuitive conversation impassioned conversation like that that has those dramatic ups and downs. it's just you know it's not gonna happen you know that's it that's the thing totally yeah. Totally. Well, um, w- were there were there anything you wanted to say uh, that we didn't touch on before we uh, stop keeping you? No. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, there's so much one one could say uh, about it. We just one quick thing is that speaking about uh, missile it did occur to me that you know just a few years before this was Shoah. Um, and it's sort of like, sure. it's a pretty heavy yeah. decade, you know, I mean, For um, sure. but it's interesting just thinking about duration, you know, uh, the idea mm-hmm. of, uh, near death giving just like slabs of time, sorry, slab, an unfortunate word, I guess, <laughs> yeah, yeah, more, yeah. but giving just <laughs> putting, I think this is how Wang Bing has sometimes talked about his movies as well, but just like, you need to put out the time that you need to like. It's almost like you put out this huge amount of time and it's just a barrier against oblivion or something. It's a recognition of like the weightiness and irreducibility yeah. of life uh, and death to a certain extent. Well, there, there's this great um, uh, passage that Barry Keith Grant, uh, at the end of his book, he, he brings up this Susan Sontag quote uh, that I'll read. All photographs are memento mori. Take a, to take a photograph is to participate in another person's mortality, vulnerability, mutability. Precisely by slicing out this moment and freezing it, all the photographs testify to time's relentless melt. Mm-hmm. And 
It's one of my favorite things written about this film because Grant, you know, he's talking about how Wiseman's film, since it's focused on the family and these decisions that have to be made, is doing exactly what Sontag is talking about and preserving them in a way that, you know, is in a way paying tribute to to a life uh, in a way that's going to live much longer than them. And it's, I think it's even more special that these are just anonymous people. Um, these aren't like, you know, people who we, we don't know a lot about these people, like what they did in life. We don't know if they have achievements or not. Mm. Um, it, it's not the, the uh, you know, the racetrack guy or um, uh, the store, the end of the store. It's not that type of like uh, people up on a pedestal. It's just, you know, anonymous people that he uh, is choosing to, or, you know, through various uh, grant, grants from the family, preserving their life uh, in, in a way uh, through the film. And it's really special. Yeah. No, I mean, even the details we get like, oh, you know, she's, she's like the, she's like the main figure in the family. She holds the household together. It's sort of incidental and almost a little pragmatic. It's like, so that means we have to deal with her in this particular way emotionally and recognize yeah. this about her. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not from the, from the standpoint of here's the backstory, you know, so you have a fully fleshed out character in front of you, you know, um, and, and I think in a, in a way, in a grand sense, the framing of the film, the book ending of the film is a movement from, I mean, toward the very, very concrete, you know, opening with, I'm sure people have said this, uh, you know, ad nauseum, opening with the boat, you know, the crew, mm. whatever, rowing uh, in the Charles or wherever it is in Boston. Um, and, you know, which has its metaphorical resonance as if it's like the, you know, the crossing the sticks, the, the char- you know, Charon. Uh, taking the ferry yeah. to, to of the, of the dead. Right. I think Grant called it sperm. It looked like sperm <laughs> <to> the water. <laughs> oh, Grant. Um, but yeah, and it starts with that. And then at the end, it's like answering the question, where do you go when you die? Well, <laughs> you go in a station wagon. That's actually yeah, how yeah. it is. Yeah, and that's, totally. that's yeah. it. And the last thing you see is like the Mass- Massachusetts license plate. Well, not that. I think there's another model. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I, I, I want to just touch upon like you know i think i i at least spoke about in an earlier episode just kind of not necessarily looking forward to this one you know the it's it's a little intimidating you know it, the it looms large and in, in just the concept of it uh, as as anyone doing a weissman watch like ah, i'm gonna have to get to near death sooner or later you know um you know actually watching the film i I don't know that 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 was necessarily warranted, you know that. I, but I could certainly under, understand it. Um, but I'm I'm curious what your guys's uh, takeaways are. I guess like like both versus going into the film and and coming away from it as uh, as it relates to that. You know, I think and and were there any moments that that kind of threatened to really uh, like do you in? Like I think I think for me the most sort of um, borderline I felt was. Um, the, the hand-holding with Bernice and her husband. You want me to fix this, the hand? You want me to fix this? Oh, yeah, it's, it's a little swollen, but that will be taken care of. You don't need to worry about it. It's part of the sickness that you can't move the muscles yet. That needs more healing time, dear. More healing time. More healing time. More healing time. 
I was kind of asking myself, like, is this a challenging film? Like thinking yeah. about about the way that you set that up, um, because I didn't really think about I didn't I didn't think it was a challenging film in the same way that um, some of the deaf and blind films are, uh, or like the the second half of that series maybe is, or something like Sinai Field, Field Mission is in like sure, yeah. abs- abstract abstractions, or something that is much more warranted is something like Meat, like. Parts of yeah, me yeah, are, yeah. are hard to watch. Um, uh, so I, I didn't think of it in that way, but um, that also doesn't mean that I watch it and I go, oh, I get it. <laughs> like there's mm-hmm. just so much here and there's so much nuance. Um, uh, and a lot of the stuff that we've touched upon that um, you can't really get. So there, it, there's, there's a challenge to, a challenge to accept everything that is in this film. But I don't think of it as like, you know, an endurance test mm-hmm. um, emotionally because he's not going for the heartstrings, you know. Um, uh, it's not. It's not like uh, Nick. You were talking up top about the the canonical art house films about death. It, you know, it's not like a more where it's like this movie is serious about death. Um, you know, it's like death is. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, no, totally. And you know, I mean, my experience. I had also been apprehensive about uh, re-watching it and even, yeah, even having watching it, having watched it and known what the experience would be. Um, but then immediately when I was watching it, I couldn't, my eyes couldn't tear away, you know? Mm-hmm. And what I, I kept feeling, I just felt it's tremendously moving. And I also felt somehow nourished by the film because what you have again and again is you have, you have this demonstration of care. Um, and, you know, I could say, oh, it's professionalized care. They're just going through the, through the motions or whatever, uh, or they're just going through procedures. But there's really, it, I've definitely found it kind of nourishing to, to see care, mm-hmm. especially, I think it's Dr. Taylor or something. Like, he's a good listener, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's something totally. tremendously um, therapeutic about watching that that makes the actual you know subject matter which is people dying slowly um you know it makes it more just a fact of life that you are dealing with and that people like this exist and are making the attempt uh to make this somehow bearable uh it actually i don't want to say near death made me feel good but (laughs) but in that sense maybe it did yeah. Well, I think Wiseman said he thought that there was like just in the experience and I think he hoped that it comes through is that there's a redemptive quality to it. Yeah. Which I think speaks to what you're, you're Yeah. Saying. Yeah. I mean, and it's something he exists something he acknowledges right from the outset, right? I think that what what is it? The, like the first thing that anyone says basically is like maybe just to adjust to get his respiratory settings changed in such a way that he doesn't look like he's breathing so hard. I think it's a little bit disconcerting for the family to come in here and see him struggling like that. And for that, that's kind of like a prologue, which is like, look, I know this is hard to watch what you're about to watch, you know, because that's about, you know, it's almost saying that to us, you know? Um, Yeah. And yeah, so that's in there as well. That's funny. Well, um, thank you so much, Nick, um, for coming on. This was a long time coming, so thank you for being patient (laughs) coming on. Um, And, uh, yeah, Yeah. we we had a blast. Yeah, no, it was wonderful talking about it. I think uh, talking about it is also therapeutic. And, and, yeah, if it's a a little longer, that that suits the movie, I guess, as well. (laughs) For sure. Right on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nick. We deal with this better than anybody else. Well, now, see, the big issue was because the nurses felt that 
when you know she dies, she has to be coded. Okay. Because the son insists that everything be done, and so they were preparing to do a code on this poor woman. I mean, I don't. Which I, I don't. You know, understand. I mean, I think the, I guess the question is, there are lots of definitions of everything. She's also gotten four units of blood, and I assume you know bicarbonate stuff. This looks like her gases are got a little better. Yeah. Crit seemed to stabilize. She hasn't had a gas since she was in Tibet. She had one a little yeah, bit later, no but, but uh, I mean, the, the bicarbs on her SNA seven. There's some bicarbs that's getting better. You know, I guess I don't see the point in doing any of that because I agree this is a surgical disease, and if they're not going to do surgery, I don't understand. I don't well, I mean, see I the point that... of prolonging. What's Aberdeen's practice on? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, again, I, I think that. Uh, um, you know, go ahead and take a look, quick look at her, and I, I don't, uh, I don't know, you know, the, the, the sort of the, you know, the, what's happened with these, the, you know, the DNR rules and everything, is, you know, over the last five years really makes, you know, puts you in a, in a difficult situation. I mean, I think that I would feel very comfortable in terms of everything being everything that we've done already. Yeah.